outro. So. No, we don't need to do the outro. Fuck that. Yeah, you're right, actually. Yeah, we don't. We'll just say, yep. <clears throat> yeah, yo, hey, welcome to a very special, uh, another detour on the on the road of uh, Revelation Records. This is a episode about a rev adjacent topic. I guess it's a rev alumni, and uh, it's like. I don't know, man. This is today. We're here to discuss antimatter, not the scientific thing, but the brainchild and lifelong project of one individual called Norman Brannon, who has done first a zine, then a compilation, and then a book of an anthology of the zine of 90s hardcore, basically. And we have, this is a, we did this episode as a Patreon bonus and we kind of intended it to be, we thought it'd be what, an hour or something like that yeah. originally? And well, just like to, almost all these, we're like, yeah, we're going to keep it lean and mean, like yeah. 45 <laughs> minutes an hour. And it turned into a fucking three-hour extravaganza. Yes. And so we decided... Because, no filler. Yeah, no, like legit just three hours of talking about hardcore. And track, yeah. I mean, we went into... Every track on the compilation, the, the, the song, you know, about the song itself, about the band itself, about acquiring the band for the compilation. Um, I mean, it is a must listen for anybody that came up in the 90s. Yeah. I and I think that this episode showcases maybe some of my wildest hot takes um yeah and 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 i gotta say norm norman seemed to love it oh man he was like so curious i think like so there's been three like three moments in in the past year where guests are like huh like what like kind of really thrown off by my opinions the first being porcel the second being Norm, and the third being Mike Judge. Yeah. But I think that Norm's, uh, you know, takes on my takes were like, he was stoked <laughs> that someone yeah. thought something so fucking... Out there. Yeah, like, just contrary to what he... I shattered his worldview. But, like, we want to we wanna give this as a, you know, tis the season... Um, as sort of a thank you for everybody, whether you're a patron or not, that supported, posted about the podcast, talked about the podcast, shared a link with someone, said something kind, written a review, whatever, um, as a thank you. But also to sort of let you know, like, this is the kind of stuff that we plan on doing as patron episodes. I know, you know, here and there, one may pop into the regular lexicon, you know, month, a month or months after uh, it com- goes on Patreon, but like we have like a lot more stuff like this planned for patrons only. So if you like what you hear, check out the website in uh, whereitwentpodcast.com, see how to become a patron. And uh, this is going to premiere on Festivus, actually. So yeah, happy Festivus to those celebrating. 
Listen, um, my dude, Andrew Ryzik, reach out to me. He is the, the second member of the Spirit-Filled Hardcore Band Focused to become a Patreon subscriber. And he, he also worked at Revelation Records for many, many years. And he reached out to me this week and said, yo, the Patreon bonus content is great. And, you know, we've really made a conscious effort to bring bonus episodes that are interesting, but also the, uh, if, if you don't know, there's a segment we do called Having My Say, where I stitch together like five minutes of, a, of an interview that didn't make it into the episode and just throw it on there. And those to me are some of like the coolest things that we do because it's just a really quick a moment of like something that didn't make it into the regular episode, but it's, you know, cool to hear someone talk about. Agreed. I, I honestly like now when we're doing it, have these interviews scheduled, I think in my head of like, what's a good uh, having my say. And uh, we've been pretty lucky with them so far. Yeah, we've we had some been, real yeah. cool nuggets. And yeah, that's like Javier said, that's something for all Patreon tiers mm -hmm. um, to get some cool stuff like, Scott Vogel talking about hot water music or yeah. Walter talking about world's fastest car. Yeah. Um, even the, the lowest tier on our Patreon is $3 a month, which is less than the cost of one latte, to be honest. And you get access to the having my say episodes at that tier. So there's and the discord, which has been really yeah. fun lately. Yeah, Discord is rad. Like just talking to people like, uh, fuck. It, we're all in various like levels of lockdown right now, societal lockdown and talking to people, especially talking to maybe people that you don't know and you're not familiar and completely comfortable with about hardcore file sharing, yo, sharing links to Spotify playlists, downloads, um, it's really cool to still be able to do that and do it in ways that are not Facebook and are not, you know, maybe a, a direct message or whatever. So that's why we're here. We're here to talk about hardcore. We're here to talk about all things uh, revelation and some things rev adjacent. Uh, Jason, why is this rev adjacent? Norm. The man, Norman Brandon, was in Texas The Reason, and he also put out the book, the antimatter book that compiled all the zines. That was a Revelation release. Which is now hard to find also. Yeah, yeah. now hard to find. I picked uh -huh. it up a while back. It is. And, and, and I've, like I, you guys know, I've been a huge fan <laughs> of Norman's for, you know, 25 years. His writing, yeah. um, you know, antimatter zine. Uh, and I... I quote unquote, followed him onto alternative press. Like mm -hmm. when I saw that he would write something for alternative press, I made sure I got to get this issue. I got to read this, this interview. I've just, and you know, Texas is a reason, another one of my favorites. So I was so happy to get to talk to him and look forward to talking with him again. Yeah. yeah. About those records. Yeah. This was just like um, a special case of being able to talk about the antimatter mm -hmm. zine book compilation and um yeah I, I i thought this was a really cool uh conversation so on his on uh norm stories 
he put something that said, should I start a podcast in 2021? So I'm here to put it in the universe and say, yes, Norman, you definitely should. Absolutely. Because he's an awesome interviewer and he interviewee yeah. and is just warm and patient. Yeah. He's and a natural. I, yeah, he's a natural. And I tried to do a zine when I was younger. And I thought, why aren't my interviews as good as Norm's? Because that was like, <laughs> that was the standard for bar. the interviews. Yeah, set the standard. And it was because I was not Norm. He's yeah. All right, what? well, let's uh, let's jump into the interview. Jump into the Happy episode. Holidays. Happy holidays, and we'll see you next yeah. time. Yeah. yeah, we're gonna do uh, we're gonna do some more stuff before 2020 is over. So make sure you pay attention. We actually have a, a shitload of content coming out before the end of the year. So True. Yeah, uh, bonus thanks, and otherwise. Yeah, yeah thanks, for, thanks for coming along with us this far. Uh, we're here today with Norm, Norman Brannon. What do you prefer? Norm, Norman? Norman. Norman. Okay. okay. Yeah. People call me Norm, but yeah. it's sort of, well, at this point, just feels like cheers. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> so uh, as we're warming up and we're just chit-chatting and you're talking about going to shows in what, 86? That you're... Well, that was like the tail end. I'd say like I, I probably really legitimately started going to as many shows as they'd let me in at mm -hmm. uh in the summer of 87 i think was really like the that was like the first that was my first cb show that was like and you and were the cbs was always touch and go oh god like 14 yeah like that. <laughs> so one of the things i wanted to bring up sorry hob was like when i first became aware of you got into texas the reason i would read interviews and you talk about going to these shows i assumed you were much older like without yeah. seeing a picture, like I'm just like, oh, this guy's like at shows in '86. Like he's, and then when I found out, I, I, to be fair, I went to one show in 1986. It was an all ages okay. crumb sucker yeah. show. Yeah, That's right. even '87, '88. Like you were 14 years old. Like right. I guess my I parents didn't going, love me. Yeah, I, mean, I, went to, <laughs> I went to shows at 14, but not like that. You know what I mean? Right. Like it was like my my dad my first show was fugazi but like my dad drove me and he stayed up in the balcony while i was dude there. same oh my god my mom took us to fugazi and stayed up in the balcony at yeah. the <laughs> is that your first show my first yeah. show yeah no fuck you okay huh. this is not about <laughs> <laughs> but anyway like so i was gonna laugh say my mom took me to agnostic front no she didn't yeah so. <laughs> uh, my mom worked the door at cb's okay <laughs> so it always kind of just let me in yeah. it yeah. always blew my mind to, to find well, out that you were so young i have like such a long sort of bizarre like i don't believe in destiny or anything like that but i um I've had like uh, things when I was even younger that were like connecting me to hardcore from a very, very, very young age. So for example, my fourth grade teacher, um, I always talk about her because she was my favorite teacher in the world. I was obsessed with her. Uh, she got married in the middle of the year, but her maiden name was Miss Cons. And she, 
knew that I was into music. I was, I, even in fourth grade, I was super, I have older brothers. So, you know, as most youngest kids were always chasing the older guys. And, uh, and so my, my teacher knew I was into music. She knew I was into heavy metal. This was in fourth grade. That's what my brother listened to. So I was into like Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and all that stuff, Ozzy. And, uh, she was like, you know, my brother plays the drums. Um, you know, maybe cause she, that was the other thing. She asked me if I ever wanted to play an instrument. And I, at that time I really was like, I want to play drums. Um, and she was like, my brother plays the drums. He should teach you. That'd be amazing. And I was like, Oh my God. Yes. And she actually, I'm not even shitting you gave me a tape of her brother's band. And she's like, this is what he does. And I was like, Oh, that's cool. I listened to it and I wasn't into it. I was like, eh, whatever. The band was Kraut. Her oh, brother wow. was John, Johnny Feedback. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Which like, I wouldn't know until like at, the at time, least three yeah. or four years later when I started. So I lived in Woodside, Queens. That's where I grew up. And I lived across the street from a park called Windmiller Park. And Windmiller Park was sort of split up into like three different sections. So there was like the section closest to my house, which I would say was um, where normal people did normal things like played basketball or ran the track or, you know, just hung out listening to boom boxes. And then in, if you go two steps up, you're in the central part of the park where there's handball courts and a swimming pool that no one used because it was disgusting. And like um, that belonged to a group of fine young gentlemen who called themselves the 52nd Street Crew. Um, they mostly just smoked pot and played handball and, you know, did nefarious things. And then if you went to the third section of the park, which was where like they had like the chess tables set up, you know, like very New York city style mm-hmm. chess tables. Um, that belonged to a group that called themselves the zombies of Woodside, uh, or ZOW and ZOW were basically a bunch of punks and skinhead kids. And so I wasn't an athlete, so I didn't really care for the first part of the park. I wasn't really into like the hoodlum style of the second part of the park, <laughs> but the third part of the park, those kids were actually sort of nice to me. Like, you know, they were always like, Hey, what's up little man. You know, like, and it was always like, they were just really sweet. Um, and I knew that what they listened to was basically some form of punk, but I never, I, again, I didn't, I was young. I didn't get into punk from that level. I just knew those kids were nice. And I, and from them, I did also discover that there was this place called CDs that they would go to every week. Um, and so I had this sort of like underlying knowledge of hardcore, you know, from fourth grade on. (laughs) Um, But it really wasn't until seventh grade, I'd say, when for whatever reason, Crumbsucker's Life of Dreams came out and I decided that that was the best fucking record ever. I was obsessed with the Crumbsuckers. And by that point, my parents had left Queens and moved to Long Island. And I was sitting in my homeroom class in seventh grade and I started drawing because I was into drawing at the time. I started drawing the little crumb sucker guy on my notebook. And this kid comes up to me and he looks down and he's like, get the fuck out of here. The crumb suckers. And I was like, you know who the crumb suckers are? (laughs) Holy shit. And he's like, my cousin plays guitar. (laughs) And I was like, fuck. (laughs) So his cousin was Dave Wynn. Who's the uh, who played guitar on Life of Dreams? I think he left the band before Beast on My Back. 
Um, but so like then all of a sudden I was like, dude, I know the fucking crumb suckers guitar. And I'm like a kid, you know? Yeah. But then the crumb suckers announced that they're playing, uh, two shows. It was like an all ages show. And then like maybe an 18 plus show at Sundance on Long Island. And this, the all ages show was at like 6 PM or something. It was like super, you know, whatever. And I was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm an all age. I'm going to go. <laughs> <laughs> so that was when I went to see the Crumb Suckers first. And I was, I was a total nerd. I had them sign my t-shirt. You know, mm. I wore that t-shirt with such pride. I have pictures of myself in that t-shirt. I was like, so That's sick. Um, but so, you know, that was very early on. And, and then from that, that just opened everything. That was when I started like, you know, really, cause that's the type of personality I am. I'm a deep diver. I like want, when I get into something, I want to know everything about it. So, you know, I immediately just started like buying every fanzine and finding record stores and figuring out like who was selling this music. What's this scene about? What's, what's this, what's this all about? And then as soon as I sort of like, um, you know, got the, the nerve to go to some of these shows, um, and I was scared, you know, like it wasn't like, uh, I was going in and I was just immediately like people taking me under their wing or anything mm. like that. You know, like I was still just like, I remember viscerally the way it felt to walk up out of the subway steps, um, on bleaker walking towards Bowery on a Sunday and just like your heart racing. Cause you don't know if that's the day that you're going to get beat down and they're going to steal your Doc Martens. And, <laughs> and, you know, but for whatever reason, I found my people, um, I found a sense of safety and, uh, and, you know, that, that was that, but, you know, I didn't like, again, like there was also the question of access, right? Like I was still a kid. I didn't have tons of money. So I had to decide what record to buy, what show to go to. And that was if they would even let me in. CBs was really weird. Like one week they'd be like, yeah, go in. And then another week they'd be like, fuck you, get out. So <laughs> until I, yeah, until I was 16, it was sort of touch and go anyway. Well, it's interesting that you said that part of your experience was buying zines and trying to learn everything because that was also a part of my experience reading this zine called Antimatter. And I mean, not just reading it, but like pouring over the fucking pages and looking at the ads and the reviews and learning all of these names like Lenny Zimkis or, <laughs> you know, whoever it was. And bit of Bo Lenny Zimkis. Great yeah, dude. bit of Bo. And, you know, the, the interesting thing now <laughs> is I was telling my kid that I was seeing photographs when I was a fucking, when I was, because my kid is 18. So when I, this came out in 1994, I was 17 and I saw photographs of Lenny Zimkis. And now Lenny's kid is in a band <laughs> called Reaching Out that I bought the CD of the other day. And if that's not fucking full circle or just keeping was, it in hardcore, like, I don't know what is. I was watching, uh, they did an interview on the New York Hardcore Chronicles. Yeah. Uh, and I was watching it and I was texting with Lenny and just like, this is a fucking trip, man. Yeah. <laughs> it was, so, it was yeah, it, it, even for me, I didn't know, you know, I met Lenny a couple of years ago. Like I'd known his name, um, you know, we became friends, but seeing the, 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 vi that video of like, you know, his kid and, uh, Kevin Craig called Pavrixia's yeah. daughter, with the Freddy glove 
Just Kevin Craig sword. gave me my first tattoo when I was like 16 in his basement. Oh, <laughs> and like now you're seeing like, and when they're talking about their ages and I'm just like, yeah. oh man, we're literally old. the same age. <laughs> but, I still think of everybody from that era as frozen in time, mm. you know? And maybe it helps that Lenny and, and me to a certain extent, we sort of look similar. We don't look that different. <laughs> so like, you know, it still feels like, yeah, we're chilling out. I'm just going to sleep <laughs> yeah. at your mom's house tonight. Like whatever. <laughs> you know, this keeps these, us young. These zines though, it gave us, it gave me an insight into the bands that I was growing up and learning their music, especially like the, in, the into another interview in issue four. Because I was like, oh, yeah, this band is cool. And, like, I like the music. And I'm like, oh, he got stabbed with a screwdriver. (laughs) (laughs) And people think he's a witch. And then, like, learning about what the lyrics to Without a Medium, you know, are about. So your zines gave us, and all all the zines of the time, gave us an insight into the band. And this is pre-internet. This is pre-YouTube or anything. And... One of the questions that I wrote down to ask you was, you had been in bands previous to and around the same time as the as the writing and the interviewing of these. And so that kind of gave you an in to talk to these people because it wasn't like, like the three of us, we just reached out to you and we're like, hey, can we do this interview with you? But a lot of these interviews in Antimatter are just conversations. It's just you talking to your friend and then you just happen to maybe hit record and then it gets transcribed and you put it into a a magazine. So do you think that you could have done this magazine if you hadn't been in bands and grown up with these people? Um, No, I mean, not exactly. Mm -hmm. I think that Although I think I could have made a version of it because mm-hmm. of the type of personality I am. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, I'm a deep diver. So I'm that way with my friends. Um, and whether the tape recorder is on or not, I'm probably going to be asking you questions that you're going to cringe about because I want to know. Yeah. <laughs> there's some really fucking deep and personal questions in But these- I feel like there's, you know, part of the thing about antimatter whether they were friends of mine or not is, is the fact that, you know, I never wanted to, I, I think that part of getting a good answer is getting somebody off guard or catching somebody mm. off guard is feeling like, you know, that's why, you know, I always point to the Jay Robbins interview because I think that's the one that, that really where he articulates that. And he was like the first person to maybe realize it was happening to him in the middle mm. of it which was basically like, you know, he was, I remember he was just so flustered. He's like, I don't know. You just walk in here and start asking you about my first crush. I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to do. What am yeah. I supposed to say? Yeah. <laughs> so, Cause I think these people get so used to just like, when did what's you up form? with your new album? Yeah. Right. Who are your influences? What, yeah. why'd you sign? You know, especially at this time, why'd you sign to a major label? What's that? Exactly. Like? And, and I think that like there, you know, there was always other things to talk about. Like, I always felt like the major label question was the least interesting thing. Mm-hmm. I just felt like, whatever, man, like the Ramones were on a major label. Who gives a fuck? I don't care. Yeah, that, that <laughs> Rancid interview where they talk about punk and he's like, you're going to tell me I'm not fucking punk? Fuck you. You know? <laughs> I, to, I mean, to, Rancid, more than any band, I mean, that band really... 
I mean, to me, when I met them for the first time, it was within the interview context. I don't think mm-hmm. I, oh, maybe I knew them. I met them peripherally mm-hmm. once. I actually guitar teched for them once. Mm. Um, they were in New York and they needed a tech and someone called me and was like, do you want to do it one night? And I was like, cool. And actually I completely fucked up because it did, when I said yes, it just didn't occur to me that Tim was a lefty. And I literally had never held a lefty guitar before. So fucking tuning it was just like, even I remember handing it to him and be like, you might want to check that again. <laughs> Cause I might've fucked this up. <laughs> um, but, but so we, you know, but we didn't have like a real conversation until we did the interviews and like, you know, I think that they, uh, you know, for me anyway, really, uh, they resembled something that I just hadn't seen in, in, in even hardcore bands or like, I mean, there's sense of deep culture and history and reverence and sort of like understanding of who they are and what they're doing was just, um, it was super inspiring to me because that's, that's something that I feel like if you're going to be involved in a subculture like this, there needs to be a sense of reverence for what came before you. Mm. And I think that's been lost over time. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, I've talked about this before, but I think this is something that I think gets lost. Um, when I first started coming up in the scene, I remember like people would have these conversations and like, um, you know, about what is hardcore, what isn't hardcore, or like, a, or even just like discussing the idiosyncrasies of, of something scene related. And usually people would cite other people as authorities, right? Mm-hmm. Well, Keith from Cause for Alarm said this, and he's been around for like mm-hmm. six years because back then <laughs> that was old school, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, or like if you've been around for like seven years, it was like, holy shit. Well, we yeah. talk um, about that but... <laughs> too, that hardcore only started in New York City in what, 85, 86? So by 1990. No, like before that. No, like uh, 80, 80, like, you know. 83, 83. Okay, yeah. yeah. No, you're, anyway, yeah. Yeah, stimulators. But, but yeah, that, the, but you couldn't right. have been, you couldn't have been around for 15 years at that point because right. it just but, didn't exactly. have existed. Yeah. Right. So, so you know, the majority of people in like, let's say 1987 had been, you know, if they were old school, that means they were around in 80 and 81 or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. And, you know, now it's crazy because I'm just like, well, fuck, then I've been around for like 30 fucking yeah. something years yeah, like right like you've yeah. spanned now four, de- <laughs> four decades even us yeah. in here three you know, 90s early 2000s and now it's three so decades. crazy yeah so but there's you know there was always that sense of reverence for what came before you and sort of mm-hmm. being able to, to to sort of give deference to the people who quote unquote been around mm-hmm. and i feel like that um i think that that's sort of important to a culture of any kind i say that about queer culture all the time like i feel like uh, you know, young queer people don't talk about older queer people with the same type of deference. Like, you know, they have experiences. We have experiences. I guess I have to be a quote unquote elder at this point. I'm in my Mm -hmm. forties. Right. Like, but we have experiences that I think are useful to younger people who are trying now trying to tread a similar path or go down a similar road or experience the same things. So, you know, hardcore isn't really that far removed from that idea in my mind. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up. Like my daughter, my 18-year-old daughter is queer also. And if you asked her about Stonewall or Harvey Milk or, you know, any of those, these things, she'd be like, I don't fucking know. Isn't that a movie? 
You know, it's, <laughs> and so right. I see that with young hardcore kids too, you know, maybe 20 year olds are like, I don't give a fuck about these bands. I don't give a fuck about agnostic fronts or crumb suckers or whatever. It's like, you have to at least respect that they did at first. My wife and I went to the beach and- this morning and we were talking about how Porcel specifically literally helped change the direction of underground music. You know, he was in one of those bands that today hardcore wouldn't look the same if his bands didn't exist. So it is important to, to have a sense of reverence. And that's actually really cool that you said that I'm going to put on a shirt. Yeah. I mean, I I think, you know, again, it's not worship, right? It's just Mm -hmm. a sense of like acknowledgement and, and sort of appreciation. Yeah. Yeah, because I always wonder, too, like, we, you know, when myself and Jason and Hav, um, this is my point where I mentioned they're a couple years older than me. I do it in every episode. But, like, you know, when I got, even when I got into this stuff in 94, 95, wasn't that old. So I didn't really have to do that as much homework as a kid right. that's getting into it now. So I do wonder, like, because I'm pretty lazy like, I'm like, man, if I was getting into it now, would I do the homework that I did when I, in 1994, when I was like, well, I got to find out everything about Discord and SST. And, yeah. But you know. think about also the access that people have now to do their homework. Yes. Like when I first got around um, and first started going to shows and getting into the music, the only access that I had really, because, okay, so first of all, think about it. 1986 to 1987. If you're buying records at that point that were from 1981, 1982, 1983, most of those records don't exist anymore, mm-hmm. right? Like those are records that they pressed a couple thousand, they sold them at shows, maybe they got a distro and hooray for them. But most of those records, you had to like just hope that one day somebody was going to be sitting outside of CV selling records. Mm-hmm. And you'd be like, oh, cool, I got the antidote seven inch, mm-hmm. you know, like right. that's which truly did happen. But so, like, <laughs> but so that that happened occasionally. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you have to be looking at Max Rockwell classifieds. You have to be begging people to make you mixtapes, and a lot of times the mixtapes you were getting were tapes of tapes of tapes. Mm-hmm. So it was like, oh yeah, you know, for me to get, you know, what came before me when I first started coming around, like it was a real fucking project. Like I really, you know, it wasn't easy. So now it's just like, you could just go to YouTube, type anything. It's mm-hmm. there. I every know. single it's, record, every single record. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. And it's so easy. Like even just for, for doing, um, you know, for preparing for this, I was like, you know, like I had the antimatter CD. I had, I had like over a thousand CDs. Well, then I, I sold all my CDs. I, I kept digital. And then, you know, I went back to records and I was just like, I wouldn't mind having a, copy the antimatter cd because i knew it had the booklet i go online and within a minute i order it and and it's at my house in three days yeah and it was that easy you know and like it wasn't like that you know even when i got into it like i remember my first mail order experiences were were with discord and it was like literally like i was 13 sending them a money order Mm -hmm. you know hoping they got it and handwriting (laughs) so it's cool but right one one of the things i was i was reading an interview with you from uh that emo uh 
the book, the book Tom Mullen, uh, Washed Up Emo, Washed Up Emo, uh, yeah. Emo Diaries. I think the the book was called maybe, or is that the no? Is that name? Emo Anthology? I think that's mm-hmm. it. Like that. I can, yeah, I can yeah. never get the titles of these. That, and that's that's on Drawdown. <laughs> I books, wouldn't have right? done anything for the Emo Diaries. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that wouldn't have worked for me. So, so it was yeah. Draw Drawdown Books. I think has them. It's really cool. Uh-huh. It's like the um tra- basically like the transcribed podcasts. Um, and you mentioned with like antimatter, like around this time, and it sort of plays into what you were talking about earlier with like moving on from hardcore a bit and being like, well, what else is there? And you talk about being almost like jaded just on music and liking like the idea of like, and I think in that you used it into another as an example. Like I loved the idea of, you know, a band like into another existing in this like hardcore subculture. Can you maybe elaborate like a little bit on, on those feelings about that? Like, yeah, definitely. I mean, so, okay. So I know that, I don't know if this will make the cut, uh, what I was talking about when we were originally sitting down and talking about the nineties and how for me, this, this era really sort of changed everything. And I always, I always point to, uh, the June, 1990 anthrax show with shelter inside out and quicksand. Mm. And I always, and I should say, I think um, God, there was a fourth band that I always uh, never mentioned. And I'm totally, was that the one that they right brought now. all the flyers to you, the anti Krishna flyers? It was. Yeah. Um, God, what was the fourth band? Beef trust was the fourth band. Oh. <laughs> there's a, there's a fucking name. Um, anyway, so yeah, but so I think about that show and I think about how it really like, I remember going to that show and leaving that show and feeling like we've turned a corner hardcore has, and partially because of the anti-Krishna flyers and the sort of protest and who that was, you know, coming from New York and, and seeing the anti uh, or the ABC no Rio matinee, the ABC no Rio matinees never really felt like a CB's matinee. It was, and, and it wasn't supposed to, they were trying to do something different. They were trying to redefine the things about hardcore that they loved. And I appreciate that. At the time, it wasn't my style. Like I sort of was like, you know, I wanted to mosh. I wanted to have fun. I wanted to, right. you know, like do whatever uh, we did at CB's. But like, but I appreciated it. And I appreciated sort of how it, it almost hewed closer to sort of punk in a lot of ways, um, which I think hardcore itself had begun hewing towards other things. Um, so in the nineties, that show where I feel like we turned a corner partially because listen to those bands, shelter inside, uh, inside out quicksand, like none of them sounded like hardcore mm-hmm. as I knew it, but it was a sick show. Everybody had a great time and none of those three bands even sounded alike, which was sort of like another right. thing. So it, I started feeling more and more that hardcore, and this was a, a you know an idea that was so pervasive that it became the name of a festival in Dayton, right? Was more than music. Mm-hmm. The idea that the thrash mosh hardcore ideal um, was starting to sort of wear thin because people were either tired of it, like we've heard we've heard it all at this point, right? Like if you've got a youth crew band in 1990 guess what? I have about 25 youth crew records at home now. I'm good. What else you got? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, and, and so, and so I think that the fans were, for lack of a better word, the fans were feeling sort of like 
ready for something new and the bands were feeling ready for something new, but we didn't know what that was. And there was no cohesive decision about it. So we were like, fuck it, everything. Let's just have everything, right? Let's sound like shelter. Let's sound like quicksand. Let's sound like into another. Let's sound like burn. Let's sound like, you know, whatever it was, it was just like, there was no coherent musical format for hardcore anymore. And I fucking loved it. This is when I got really excited about hardcore. I actually sold all of my 80s hardcore records in 1991. I went to Venus on St. Mark's Place and just like, I gave it to them. I was just like, give me whatever. I think they gave me like 300 bucks. I got totally ripped off. I didn't care. I was like, that's cool. I didn't care because now I was like, this is new. This is fun. This is exciting. We're creating something. Right. Like even in the in the mid to late 80s, it still felt like we were inheriting something. Right. Like Youth of the Day still sounded like the abused. Right. Any way you cut it. Like we weren't really doing anything that was like new anymore. Right. So. So. But in the 90s, that was changing and it was changing on every level. It was not only changing musically, but it was changing on like what we were singing about, how we were Mm -hmm. singing it. Even how we were dancing at shows, that started to change. Um, the idea that a Fugazi could come out and be like, no, you know what? No dancing at shows. Cool, right? Like, we, you know, it was totally a free-for-all. And to me, that was truer to sort of like the mission of hardcore than anything. Because what's the point of being, quote-unquote, punk if you're conforming to an idea that came before you? And I think that the the 90s, especially from, you know, 90 to 97, 98 even, um, was just rife in, in sort of pushback towards any idea of what hardcore was from the standpoint of a form. Hardcore was to us an ideal, an ethic, mm-hmm. a way we lived, a way of being. Um, we recognized each other when we saw it, (laughs) but I think that the main criteria for what was hardcore and what wasn't to us was, are you real? Mm. And if you're doing something and that's real, you're good. Um, you mentioned Fugazi. I feel like in a way they were kind of like, and they were a little before 90, I think they formed in 87, but it's kind of nuts, yeah. like how important that band was. I know for me, getting into hardcore, they were um, they were huge. But like just how they opened, I feel like they opened a lot of doors because it's these people that are coming from you know older bands, like you said, those '80s bands. I mean, specifically, really Ian. Yeah, first know, wave. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're doing something totally different. They're doing something too where they're not even, they didn't even want people moshing at shows and doing all that, like just kind of creating this whole new culture that really did, I think, take shape more in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Like, for sure. But I do and, think and that, none of us would have done any of it if it wasn't for Fugazi. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, they absolutely opened the door early on and they made a lot of those ideas permissible mm-hmm. because again, Ian, had been around mm-hmm. yeah. that reverence. He wasn't just some schmuck, you know, no, those <laughs> all those guys, you know what I mean? Like they were, they'd all been around. They were all first waivers. We respected them. Nobody was going to be like, fuck that band. Like we were like, 
no, dude, the guy's staying from minor threat. Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) So he, he basically, you're, you know, they, they made it permissible for everybody else to do what we did. They set standards for a lot of things to like show prices and like Walter was talking about how he had to bring some soup cans to go see them at the, right. at that venue in New York city, like that continued on in the nineties. And yeah. remember when you would go up to a show and the door, they'd be like $6. What the fuck? Why is it so expensive? <laughs> yeah. You know? And there were, there were like fundraisers and that kind of stuff. And so I, I don't think that that would have happened in the nineties if it wasn't for Fugazi because you look at those kind of second wave hardcore bands, like you said, you know, that sound like the abused or antidote or whatever. Like I can't really see bands like that doing fundraisers for a soup kitchen or for right. the Shoshone defense project or Western Shoshone <laughs> defense project or free Leonard Peltier or whatever it is. But then you have positive force and the revolution summer and they're bringing these ideas into hardcore and then maybe also polarizing a bit because you have this contingent that's like, no moshing, fuck you. We're going to fucking mosh. I'm not going to yeah. fucking sit down at a show. We're going to do this our way. So it, but it, you know what? Like, I would say, I would, I would push back because, you know, Texas had a sort of, people don't talk about it, right? But Texas had a no moshing rule. Mm. And we would literally stop playing every time someone moshed. Uh-huh. If you stage dove, we stopped playing. Mm. And we would just sort of like sit there until you calm down. <laughs> but I remember like, and it, we, we, the first time we went to Europe, Europe in the nineties was a little bit um, behind. They were still like a, a little behind because the internet hadn't happened yet. So they yeah. were sort of getting things a little later. Um, and so I remember like on our first tour of Europe, we would actually, well, I would actually go up with one person from every, so if it was, we were playing in Germany, I'd go up with a kid who speaks in German and I would give a speech before we played a little about how I really wanted everyone to feel welcome. I want everyone to feel like they belong and they can stand wherever the hell they want. And I want everyone to feel safe. And we would just really appreciate it. If you didn't mosh and stage dive, just dance in your place, have fun, sing along, you know, let's be real and let's be together. And, you know, he, somebody would say it in German and, you know, people would applaud, mm-hmm. you know, like if people were psyched because it was just like, yes, I can actually like just stand wherever I want, you know, enjoy this show and not have to worry about bullshit. And, and part of that was, again, like going back to this idea of like, this is a very 90s idea of saying like, why do we have to keep doing it the way mm-hmm. that we've been doing it? Right. If, if, if we think moshing is a stupid idea, why, why do we have to keep doing it? Mm-hmm. And and after a while, we just started to realize as a band that we didn't want it because we felt like it was fucked up to smaller people and mm-hmm. women. And, you know, you're basically telling a disabled person stand in the back yeah. or sit in the back in your wheelchair or do yeah, like when you hear that, what do like, you expect? You're up front. Like right. I always hate I always I'm, and like, you know, I get like people going off at shows. I'm not a, I'm not a mosher. I'm like just a guy that gets up front and likes to sing along. But I always hated like, what does this person expect getting injured there at the front? And I'm like, well, I don't know if it necessarily needs to be that way. Like right. someone shouldn't expect like, well, I'm going up front. I'm, I'm going to get, I'm going to get socked know, in the mouth. Yeah. Kicked in the face or whatever. And Crowd I killed. liked, I think and I the read fact some is people do stupid shit. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
right? So it's not just like, are they moshing or stage diving? It's like, are you also doing stupid shit? Yeah. And like, I remember a show we played at the, it was the new Bedford Fest. And it was like, I remember Game Face and Promise Ring and Chokehold and Lifetime. And it's a wild lineup. During Lifetime set, uh, somebody dove off the balcony. And I don't know if it was the person who dove or the person they landed on, but somebody went to the hospital that night. And it was a fucking mess. And Lifetime were just like, yeah, set's done, goodbye. They were like, oh, fuck, you know, like so upset because somebody got very hurt, potentially, yeah. you know, broke his neck. Yeah. And uh, and I remember actually saying to the guys in Chokehold, I was like, are you guys actually going to play still? Because I was like, I would have, if we were next, I would have left. Yeah, it's like a mood like, killer. Yeah, like I would have been like, dude, somebody may never walk again. Yeah. I'm not about to just play a show now. Yeah. You know, like right. you do stupid shit, show's over. Um, but so that's what I'm saying. It's just like, unfortunately, you can't police everybody like in that way. And there are a lot of people who don't give a fuck. They're just like, that's what you get. And I just never believe that. I feel like that's what you get. Here's what you get. I want you to feel safe, secure, positive, happy. That's yeah. what you get. And like, I'm not like, like moshing and stage diving stuff is cool. Like I, and I love watching it usually from afar. Um, but I, and I get up and like, when I go to a show, like I said, I get up in the mix, but I also like the idea, like on the reverse side, like you said of that whole thing with Fugazi and like Texas was doing where it was like, Hey, why don't we do something different? Um, because I think I read something with you where you were talking too about how like is moshing and like slam dancing or whatever, the only way to show that you're into a band, like there's, there's other ways, but I think we're so ingrained on like, if you see a band and people aren't going completely ape shit that people aren't into it. Well, I think there's one other piece of context to this conversation for me which was that when I sort of decided that moshing and stage diving were sort of rote and were something that I wasn't, you know, didn't want to be a part of, um, it was also the nineties. It was grunge. It was Eddie Vedder diving off of, you know, speakers and like, you know, smells like teen spirit video, which had hardcore kids in it that mm-hmm. are legit and cool. <laughs> Shout out, <laughs> but, uh, uh, bit up Boda Ben edge. <laughs> he was in that video he's in that video yeah <laughs> was he like 12 yes he was <laughs> but so yeah so i mean i was like look it's not ours anymore it's not even proprietary anymore right like it'd be one thing if you were like this is part of the culture and it belongs only to our culture well guess what it belongs to someone else now right mm-hmm. now we have that fucking idiot that was like crowd surfing at the trump rally last week Right. Like, and it's just like, it's not, it's, if somebody's crowd surfing at a Trump rally, it's definitely not ours. Yeah. Like it's, no, it's we're, we're done with it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. So I think that there's this element of innovation that I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe we don't know what the next thing looks like. Maybe mm-hmm. some kid hasn't invented it yet. Guess what? Some kid, and I could probably point at him cause I think I know who he is invented even the whole Ninja windmill shit that people oh <laughs> started doing in the 90s, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Nobody was doing that in the 80s, but that was a new style of dance. Arguably more violent, but, <laughs> yeah. but still, at least it was new. I was sort of like, and it, and it, it 
it needed or, or sort of like asked for a little bit of style. So I appreciated mm-hmm. that. Um, but you know, that's what I'm saying. Like there's a lot of innovation that I think people aren't like, uh, coming up to task with what, what can we do that's new? How can we contribute to the culture as opposed to just try to reproduce the culture? Mm, yeah. I think you nailed it. Like that's what I was looking for is not that I'm saying people shouldn't stage dive and mosh and stuff, but that it was nice to have something different. Cause that was the time I was getting into hardcore was the nineties when things were really different, like that kind of moshing and stuff. Like the early shows I went to didn't have that. It was usually seeing bands like Hav said, where you five dollars in a can of soup, and there was no <laughs> stage. The mm-hmm. PA barely worked, mm-hmm. and you know everybody just sat bobbing their head. There wasn't mm-hmm. moshing. So I remember when I did right. first finally go to a show where with moshing, I was really thrown off because I was like, oh, I didn't think people did this anymore. So right. and, and so now, what's so what's interesting is that as the nineties progressed moshing sort of almost it was a like natural selection Mm. it just it started to dissipate because the music had evolved so much that it wasn't even moshy like who the hell moshed to chamberlain Mm -hmm. like it's just no after a certain point it was like that's inappropriate Mm -hmm. and i think that but it wasn't less hardcore or at least it wasn't less hardcore to a good group of people. Yeah. Because if we're going to bring it back to antimatter, the reason that the fanzine started, uh, so this was 1993. I was in shelter still. I knew I was about to quit shelter because I was just sort of, I didn't want to be a Harry Krishna poster child. I was very like sensitive about like everybody looking as to whether or not I was eating garlic or onions at a certain day or something. I was just like, Oh my God, stop. Like I didn't want to be that. Right. Um, it's too much pressure being in this band. <laughs> that was how it felt. Um, so I knew I was going to quit and I kind of was like, well, I need to, I need a next step. I need something else to do. And at around this time, Max from rock and roll, which was basically the only fanzine that arguably everyone in the scene read. Um, had made this editorial and advertising decision that they were going to um, essentially ban any bands and labels that they decided was not punk. Mm. So one, it was a response to a lot of the sort of like fake indie labels that were coming out at the time. Um, You know, Atlantic had seed records and like there were a lot of like, smaller quote-unquote indie labels that were really just major labels in disguise Mm -hmm. and so it was partially a response to that but it was also partially a response to sort of the way that hardcore specifically had been evolving further and further away from punk music and they decided that they were the arbiters of what was punk and what was not punk but in the process that meant every single one of my friends bands and every single one of my friends labels from doghouse to equal vision to victory to revelation, you're out. No more maximum rock and roll. You're not punk. And that to me as the sort of like weird, maybe um, opportunist, (laughs) I sort of was just like, well, that's a whole market of music and people now that have nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. Like other than these like Xeroxed fanzines that, you know, you get occasionally at a show. There were no fanzines 
that were really like really, really doing it anymore. Like no answers was at the end of its sort of run. And that was a hugely influential fanzine to me. There was always suburban voice. That was sort of like a real, like Al from suburban voice really helped me when I started the zine. Um, sold out in Canada was still happening. Um, you know, but it wasn't, there wasn't really like, you know, maximum rock and roll was this all sort of like encompassing thing. And without it, a lot of people were lost. They, and, and, and it was also, I should say before the internet, our real sense of connection. We met a lot, a lot of people I met from maximum rock and roll pen pals or trading tapes or doing all these things. Like that was a place where we met. So, um, so I just sort of was like, yeah, I think this is it. I think I need to do a fanzine that's going to basically carry all of the people that Maximum Rock and Roll dropped and make it a point to give, um, you know, give that, the, that music and those people a platform. And so I started asking people, and like one of the first people I asked was Purcell. I said, like, what did you sell of, this, of a schism fanzine? You know, and he was just like, I can't remember now if he said 3,000 or 5,000. And I was like, holy shit, that's crazy. Like, yeah. I could never sell that many. But like, so I was just like, I thought I was starting modest. I was like, I'll print 2,000. Like, I'm an idiot, right? 2,000 is a lot of zines. But I sold them largely because I was still in shelter. We were still playing. I was able to sell them at shows. And, um, and once I sold that, the next issues just kept each issue. I made more and more and more until I got to the last issue. I was printing 5,000 and it's crazy to me now to think about that because fanzines just don't sell 5,000 copies. Like that was a ridiculous amount of paper. <laughs> right. And I remember but you saying like, like <laughs> talking about like you were able to like live off the fanzine which yeah. was pretty unheard of, right? Like, especially back then, like to, uh, to live off of a fanzine, but you know, like I'm, I'm sure it wasn't like you're living in a mansion off of it, no, but like you were able but I to had like, like a, I had a nice bedroom in the East village in Manhattan, nice. <laughs> you know, it was like, uh, I mean, you know, it was in, back it was in the nineties. So it was like, my rent was still 600 bucks, which was like expensive at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like, you know, it was, it, it, it allowed me to, sort of just survive like as a young person, you know, like when antimatter was happening, I was in my early twenties and like, you know, we don't ask for much in our early twenties, you know, right. like we yeah. a bed and a desk. I'm good. Yeah. Give me some food. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was a, a sort of amazing moment of sort of synchronicity. I think. So one of the interesting things as we start to dive into the antimatter compilation that you're, you're touching on is that a lot of these bands, when I look at this track listing, I don't see 16 hardcore bands in as like, especially as a young person, I'm like, eh, game face is not a hardcore band. Eh, Garden variety is not a hardcore band. Sensefield's not a hardcore band, but hearing you talk about Texas is the reason, especially it's like it, the nineties really made you question what is hardcore? Is it a sound? Is it an ethos? Is it how you put your records out? And I think the answer is yes to all of those. It's it, it, those mixed bill shows from the 90s where you could have ashes, outspoken, you know, potentially like downcast, uh, you know, all of these on the same bill. And everybody got along. 
maybe nobody got kicked in the face or, you know, punched in the mouth or whatever. And everyone was doing this underground and on their own terms. And I think that especially the, the snapshot that this compilation takes is a really good cross-reference of those bands who don't sound alike, weren't at the same place uh, career-wise, but they're all joined here together on this comp. So tell us real quick how you chose the bands on this comp. Was it all bands that you had interviewed or was it just like, I'm just going to throw this, this compilation together because I like all of these? Well, uh, I should start by saying that the comp wasn't my idea. Mm. It was uh, Fred Feldman. Um, so Fred worked at Profile. He's currently the guy who runs Triple Crown Records. Um, at the time, Fred worked at Profile. Um, and he was uh, the guy sort of like responsible for that wave of 90s reissues of like Chromags yeah. and Leeway, uh, Warzone and all that stuff. I think there was like a Sunday matinee comp he did. Mm-hmm. Um, I had it. So yeah, so he was like, he was in the middle of doing all that stuff. And, uh, you know, all that stuff is of an era. So he was trying to figure out like, well, what is sort of like the organizing principle of now? Like when I think of horrorcore in the 90s, how do I put it together? And he was just like antimatter. He's like, I, he saw the zine. He was like, this zine bridges the old school with the new school, the classic hardcore with the new sounds. Like for some reason in the antimatter universe, all these bands make sense. Right. So he was just like, he should be the one to put the comp together. So he calls me up and pitches it to me and it was an instant yes. Like I was just like, absolutely. Like this is exactly what's on my mind when I think about doing the fanzine. Um, I also knew it was going to be a lot of work because it's a legit comp. So there's going to be like contracts and like, you know, like we have to like deal with licensing and and other labels and all this stuff. So I kind of was like, all right, here's the thing. For me, it started with quicksand. The first song I wanted was Shovel. I knew it existed. I knew it wasn't out. And I was just like, I need that song. So they were on Island at the time. And I was basically like, if I can get Island to license me the track, then I can get Revelation to license me a track, right? Like this is going to be the, the, the biggest hassle. So let me start there. And if I can get that to happen, I'll do the rest of the comp. So, um, you know, I called up Walter and he, I actually thought I was going to have to like pitch him hard on it. And he was like, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, like right away. And I was like, <laughs> okay, cool. Like, don't you have to talk to the band about it? He said, there, that'll be, that was so cool. They'll be into it. Yeah. So <laughs> I was like, all right. So, uh, so he puts me in touch with people at Island and, uh, it actually happened fairly smoothly. Um, we, you know, gave little advances for every, and when I say little, very little advances to every band. Um, so immediately I was like, look, Quicksand by far is the biggest band on the comp. So if they're taking X amount of dollars, then the other bands shouldn't be, you know, asking for more, you know, <laughs> like it was just like, they're, you know, it's just, it, it didn't make sense to me otherwise. So I was like, okay, cool. Once I got that track, then I started to really think about like, who do I want to be on this comp and like, how is this going to play out? And 
it was a balance. I wanted to have bands that sounded like traditional hardcore, a band like Mouthpiece or Strife. I wanted to have bands that were doing the more aggressive shit like Snapcase. Snapcase was a must-have for me too because they, to me, were like a quintessential antimatter band. Um, they were a band that when I actually sat down to interview them, I wasn't even sure that I liked them yet. I was sort of like, they had this weird reputation of being like weird, like jocks. And I kind of was like, the whole reason I, I decided to interview them was to dispel that. Cause I was like, I don't believe it. I'm going to figure this out. And that interview, I think changed their trajectory as well. Cause people, it was kind of like the end of their jock uh, reputation <laughs> and people started to take them like very seriously which was great because they were about to put out an amazing record. So, um, so there was that. And then of course there was like the melodic bands, the sense fields, the game faces, far sides, like those things were also very important to me because again, they played a part of um, what I felt was this new sound and new style that people were really taking to. So it had to have a balance. It had to have a mix. Um, you know, some bands I'm sure, like couldn't get on the comp. I tried for, to get sick of it all. Um, that couldn't happen for some reason or another. Uh, I tried to get, I forget now, I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been talking about, people are always asking me about reissuing it. And I'm like, I would only do it if I could get like extra tracks. Mm -hmm. And uh, and there was other bands that I asked that didn't work out for some reason. But I think 16 ended up on the final version. Yeah. So 16, I felt like that's, that's a good comp, right? It is. Um, but yeah. but the main thing was like balance. Like it was really just about balance and also about feeling a, a sense of connection to every band. And that was really important to me as well. Like putting a band like Garden Variety on it was really important to me as well because they were still sort of like, a lot of people hadn't heard of them at all. And I knew that people were just going to be like, of all the bands on the comp, they were going to look at that name and be like, who the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I love I love the booklet that comes in it because you give your personal connection and it has like excerpts from the zine and um it really puts everything it like ties everything together is having right. that like it wasn't just like I like when a comp well, I really like when any record has like extra stuff inside where you can really like dive in and get a sense of of purpose from it. And this comp had that because like it, you would tell your personal connection and then, you know, have that excerpt. So, right. and I mean, I, look, people criticized me back in the day because they felt like antimatter was just like a fucking narcissist project or something. Mm -hmm. like, well, he talks about himself all the time, you know, and I'm just like, yeah, I'm I in the fucking room. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of people did, you know, and it, it, they were, cause I think there, there's like a school of people who think that, uh, an interviewer or a journalist should be the background, the wallpaper, and that the, the, the they should always be centering the uh, person you're interviewing, the topic of interest or the subject mm -hmm. of interest. And that was just never my thing. Um, my feeling was always like, if I'm in the room and I'm a part of the conversation, uh, then that's just as important as the person I'm speaking to. Uh, and the other thing is that if I'm going to get interesting things from the people that I'm speaking to, I need to give part of myself. They need to sort of, it needs to be an even exchange. And that was really important. So on that level, 
having those excerpts in the liner notes were also really important because antimatter was me. I, and I wasn't about to take me out of it. Right. Yeah. I wanted to Is ask there, about uh, the, the layout for the, for the comp, about the cover shot. And Tim Owen took that photo. Is that right? I think so. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I don't remember. In, in, okay. the, in the layout, it says art direction and design. Tim, Tim Owen. Carla Layton. Bo Tim Owen. Love yeah, him. Bit of Bo J. Tim Tim Owen. Yeah. He did. He took the cover. It says cover photo Tim Owen. Yeah. And is that so what ironically, band is that? that's Shelter. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Who aren't even on the comp. You know what's funny? I didn't want to ask because I was like embarrassed that I didn't know. Which, which is one of the things we said, like on this podcast, we're like, we're going to be honest if we don't know something, but I'm like, I don't want to ask who it is. Cause I feel like someone's going to be like, you idiot. It's I thought obvious. it was outspoken. Yeah. yeah it's, no, I mean, it's well, not obvious. And yeah. I think that's why I liked it. Yeah. It, it was sort of like, you know, it just felt like a hardcore show. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted it to be clearly about being a hardcore show and not necessarily who the show was. And, and so the fact that it's a band that's not even on the comp, I was like, that's perfect. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> was there but ever, he, oh, sorry, go on. No, go ahead. I was going to say, go was ahead. there ever a, a point? Cause I know at this point, like Texas is the reason was really popping. Was there ever a thought of having Texas is the reason on it? Or were you just like, nah, this is like a, a separate thing. Yeah. Um, I thought about it, but, um, it's sort of so when antimatter died when i quit the fanzine it was partially because texas was starting and i basically wanted to create a line between the two projects because antimatter i could be a little bit opinionated and <laughs> so to have and it be like, these opinions do not reflect uh texas. right <laughs> Yeah, I mean, basically now I was I was becoming I was joining a unit of people, and I had to be conscious of sort of us as a unit. And and Texas very much was a band that we were very much we sort of fancied ourselves like a gang, you know, like all for one, one for all. Like from the minute that we got together, we said if any one of us quits this band, it's over, done, no replacements ever. Fuck it, it's this band. Period. And that was the way we ran things. So doing antimatter and doing the band just felt like untenable. And so I didn't want to merge the streams. Makes sense. So uh, one of the things that we do on this podcast is when we discuss, discuss the revelation records albums, we talk about hot tracks. And so we, uh, we talk to each other and then we talk to our interviewees about what their favorite songs were on the record. And we wanted to, for this record, because it is 16 songs and that would take a long time to discuss each one, but we wanted to go through each track and just kind of the three of us be like, yeah, I love this track or like, eh, maybe I don't love this track so much. And then in, in, a, in a nice, you know, a nice way. And, and then we're nice. And then yeah. when we get to what our each individual favorite track is, we can talk about that song a little bit more in depth. And so we would like for you to participate in this as well and be like, this is my favorite song on the track. And then any of the other songs, if you want to jump in and be like, oh, well, I, 
I wanted to tell you this about this song or, you know, whatever. I remember yeah. when they sent me this, and I was <laughs> yeah. like, Oh my God. Right. Um, and keep, I guess, I don't know if this informed, this is a, like a, a patron episode, so it won't mm-hmm. necessarily be heard by thousands of people. people. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, um, you know, this album kicks off so strong because this is an exclusive track, the first of many exclusive tracks. And if you're a fan of quicksand and if you're a completist, which many of us were, in the 90s and let's say you want to make a mixtape of all quicksand songs and like you know maybe the b-side of the divorced single <laughs> and then studio tracks and demos or whatever shovel has to be on there and they still play this song even though it's not on anything else so it's like true fans only but this quicksand song is so fucking good and so Number one song for like just to kick this, the album off to me is like it's such a banger and it's such a winner, right? I think that everyone in this chat can give this the quicksand. Uh, this is for me. I love this song. Yes, and I, I should add because I, I I still rib Walter about this to this day that he did not think it was one of their stronger songs, and oh. I was like. Because I said to him, like, why wasn't this on the fucking record? Are you crazy? Yeah. When I first got the track, um, you know, and I asked Walter about why it didn't go on the record, uh, his feeling was that it was not as strong as the other material. And I said to him that he was fucking insane, number one. <laughs> I, <laughs> I was like, also, it has the best quicksand mosh part of all time. <laughs> um but, you know, I was like, but look, I don't care that it's not on the record because it's got to be on this one. Like, this is this is what I care about. This song is one of my favorite songs. And uh, the reason why I was saying that I still rip him about it is because when they did start playing it again, part of it is because I think he realized that the song really has legs, like that people really took to it. And the people who love this song love the song. Oh, yeah. And, and when I was talking to uh, Alan Cage, who's like one of my best friends, you know, we talk about it and he was always just like, I just want to say, I never believed it was weaker than the other songs on the record. <laughs> no, I'm glad that's, I'm glad that's happened. Cause I always wondered, yeah. I thought manic compression doesn't have any songs that are bad. I don't want it to, to no skippers. I don't want to say that, right. but this song is better than some of the songs on there. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. in, a lot of times I'll say it's my favorite quicksand song mm. because I think it's, it's got a little bit of everything that made quicksand quicksand. Yeah. Um, For me, it's top three. Mm. Yeah, definitely. definitely top three. But like, sometimes I'll be like, this is the best quicksand song. Oh, this is an interesting story too. I, I'll throw this one in. Uh, before the antimatter comp came out, Texas went to, um, Europe with Sam I am for a quick tour and uh we were tiny I, I don't even know if our seven inch was out at that point um but for some reason our booking agent booked us two shows at the beginning of the tour where we were headlining mm. and we were just like this is fucking insane and I also remember one of the bands that opened for us was named God's Balls I'm not even kidding it's ridiculous like but, the tad album. <laughs> <laughs> but so we uh so we didn't have enough songs, right? What, Cause what happened was we played every song we had and then we just didn't take into account that in Europe, at least at this time in Europe, every band played an encore. That was yeah. just part of the culture. So we played every song we had that first night 
And, uh, and we didn't have any other songs and they were screaming for an encore and we were just like, fuck, what do we do? And I was like, do you want to play shovel? They've never heard it. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Garrett was like, I don't know the fucking lyrics. So I was like, make it up. Who gives a fuck? <laughs> so for those two nights, anyway, we played shovel as our encore wow, with made yes. up lyrics. And it was like, yeah, it was great. That's no, gonna be to go on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, that's gonna be on the reissue. Of <laughs> oh, there you go. Texas is I the wonder if someone. I wonder if there's sure. any recording of it. I doubt it. I doubt it. Yeah. I doubt it. I but hope so. It's just such a good song. I'm like, sure it was fucking terrible too. But <laughs> I'm I'm cheating because like to me this is the penultimate hot track. Mm. But I am going to pick another hot track of a maybe a lesser known. So sure. I, so in reality. This is my hot track, but I can do whatever I want. It's so not your hot track for this, for this <laughs> yeah. review? Yeah, like that's – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick one that's maybe a little more – Less overrated. obvious. Yeah. So I'm gonna be, I'm, I'll be real and definitely say as much as I love this song, it's not my hot track. Oh, nice. Like okay, it. cool. Nice. Um, second on the CD is Game Face, and I grew up in Orange County, Cali- Orange County California, and I never got into Game Face. It just – it just didn't click with me. And that's not to say that I don't love a lot of the other bands from this time. I love Farside. I saw, man, when I was in high school, so this is 94, 95, probably saw Farside over 30 times in a year. Everywhere. Coffee shops, shows, community centers, everything. They were one of the best bands around. And I knew that Game Face was in the same realm but it just it just didn't click with me. So this song is not for me. It's funny because I feel like there's such different bands. They are, but know? it's like, like even back then. Yeah, but it's yeah. like the Far Side, Sensefield, Game Face. You know, they all kind of were. I don't want to say a package, but it's like most of my friends that liked those bands, they liked all of them equally. I yeah, see what I guess. You mean. Yeah. I love. When, I mean, so, when they started, I I put them more in sort of like that big drill car sort mm-hmm. of like more pop punk yeah it, they evolved over time but mm-hmm. definitely when they started that was the, the vibe that i was mm-hmm. getting so Sorry, i love Greg. game face i was saying i love game face i actually got into game face because of texas because of, you know like back in the day oh thanks to game face for the lyric we lifted well i guess i gotta listen to game face now because i love <laughs> this and then i think the first game face i got was cupcakes which I think was sort of them starting to transition into like the more like really Jeff, I think becoming like an, a singer songwriter type guy. Mm-hmm. But I like the descendants are one of my all time favorite bands. And to me, game face were just like the descendants, but a little more power pop, a little more of like emo, like, or whatever you want to call it. And um, I actually like this version, I think, better than the version that's on the Every Last Time uh, record. I agree. um, And I just – Jeff is super cool. Uh, We both share a favorite band, so we became internet friends over our love for REM. Um, Mm -hmm. And he recorded this incredible uh, collection of, like, REM covers um, that I think it was on Bandcamp, it like benefits cancer research or something. But I just think he's super talented. And um, but Game Face were like fun, like even three to get ready album. It's like a good summertime windows down. Um, but yeah, I love this song. I love Game Face. 
I can put it out there right now. Like, I'll just say, this is my hot track. So I'll just oh, put this out there. Oh, nice. Right yeah. That's great. Uh, but you were going to say something, Jason? I could go. Oh, I got to say, yeah. Also, <laughs> I really liked the acoustic EP that Jeff put out. Did you ever hear that? Well, that's it's pretty awesome. recent. I feel like pretty re- didn't he do a couple seven inches oh, this recently was a, on the This was a long time ago. It had like yeah, I think I know. And, of an acoustic guitar on the front, and he quoted yeah. David Bowie lyrics on it. I don't know. I just really like that. I didn't, I, this song is not for me, and mm-hmm. especially because the next song on the comp is. See, I think he's such an underrated songwriter. Like he's talking about Jeff. Mm-hmm. I think he's super talented. Um, and I thought you were talking about Mike Hartsfield. Oh <laughs> <laughs> like, I just think, I just think he's, I don't know. I just think he's awesome. I could, yes, like, I, I, I'm excited to yeah. get to the game face records when we get to him. Um, I can, yeah, I can appreciate his, his musicality and his songwriting ability. Even if I don't enjoy it, I can appreciate it completely. The acoustic yes. thing is real cool. And he, and he, and he uses that line, like a, uh, you better look at you rock and rollers. Everybody's yeah, going to get older. Yeah. From the David Bowie. <laughs> Did I quote that correctly? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Listen too, to the yeah. REM cut. Co- he does the REM covers and I think his daughter's on a song. It's freaking mm. great. Yeah. So my, my deal with this is this, like I, um, I originally heard Game Face the first time I went to um, <clears throat> Huntington Beach uh, and I met like Dennis Remzing and Mike Hartsfield. This was before Antimatter. So this, actually this is when I was in Resurrection. So like 1991. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so Dennis had signed Game Face to Network Sound <clears throat> and he, he gave me the record. And that first Game Face album was really uh, like again, it was just, it was, it was that sort of exciting next place for like melodic punk to me, um, that still felt like it, it was edgy enough, um, to be around hardcore. Good. And the good, a good album, right? Yes. Good. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yep. And, uh, not just that it's a good album. We're talking about the title. With the wagon. Election year is the first song. I always think yes. of that when it's, yeah sick song so yeah so yes. there was there was this and then i actually reviewed it in um in the zine and i mentioned because their first drummer killed himself and uh it sort of like obviously derailed the band for quite some time and i remember i just wrote a really heartfelt review and sort of mentioned it and and all that and um todd their guitar player i don't remember how this started but like we started faxing each other oh and like that's how we would communicate <laughs> so like, 90s <laughs> we both like i lived at equal vision house so there was a fax machine there and like you know he like worked at a boys and girls club with a fax machine and so like we would just fax each other shit and i remember like people were like are you guys like sending each other love letters what the <laughs> fuck is this like you know but we would just send each other stupid shit like sometimes it was nice letters and we'd talk on the phone and we just became like good friends. And, uh, and so, you know, as we became, as our friendship sort of developed, the band developed and as the band developed, then I started my band and we would tour together. And we were just like, we became sort of like, uh, mixed in a lot of ways. And, and sort of the reason why there's a game face lyric on a Texas is the reason song is because I actually had a mixtape 
the deal was like, I had a mixtape when we were recording Do You Know Who You Are? And I took that lyric and wrote it on the cover of the mixtape and the song was on it. And Garrett didn't know that lyric from anything. He just thought it was just something I wrote on a mixtape. And he thought, oh, this will be so cool. I'm going to surprise Norm. I'm going to put this in a song. And he'll be like, it's like he wrote some of the lyric. And so I remember we were recording and he starts singing and he's like in the booth and he's like, and then he starts singing that lyric. And I'm just like, you know, it like didn't hit me at first, you know, like I was just looking at him like, what? And so then he comes out of the booth. I was like, why do I know that? And he's like, you wrote it. And I was like, what are you talking about? You know, it's like, yeah, you wrote it. It's on that mixtape in the car. And I was like, oh, fuck, dude, that's a game face lyric. <laughs> and so, you know, at that point, we had to like decide if we were keeping the lyric or not. And so I called Jeff from the studio. I was like, so this is what happened. Funny story. Can we use it? And he was like, are you kidding? Yes, that'd be amazing. So it stayed. So we've had this bond and this connection. And when finally I was putting the comp together and I asked them for a song, you know, I honestly was not expecting a song of that caliber. That song to me is, it was so perfect for this comp. It had everything that I loved about Game Face. It had this sort of like real strong, melodic sensibility and also sort of like anchor to it. But then it also had a mosh part. Here's the recurring theme. I do love mosh parts. <laughs> but it, it had that It had that in it. It was just like when that song breaks down, I was just like, yes, yes, yes. You know, like it was really exciting. Um, and then there's also just the sentiment of the song. It just very, it felt so how I felt and also sort of how I felt a lot of people in antimatter felt, you know, like it, it sort of felt so right for the vibe of the zine as well. Um, but it, you know, more than any other song on the comp to me, that is the most well-constructed crafted song on the record. Mm. That's why it's track two, because historically track two for me is like a big deal. If, yeah. if I'm on a record you know what track two is. You're like, Norm likes that song a lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. So when, um, so this was your hot track even then, like you just knew like, yeah. this is the one, I mean, to me, they were band like, and you hear this song, like in the nineties, this song could have been on the radio. Like this could have been like, to me, they should have been a lot bigger than they were, but in a way it's kind of cool that they're like a little bit of a secret. Cause I do feel like, when I meet somebody that's a fan, because I don't necessarily meet too many people who even either know who they are or like, you know, most of them are like Hav and Jason where they're like, oh, it's cool, but not my thing. It's like a cool bond. Like, oh, you like Game Face? And then we can talk about yeah. the records. And yeah, so we're, I'm glad we'll get to, we will get to talk Game Face more in depth and hopefully with Jeff and, uh, you know, Todd and whoever else wants to, wants to talk. Um. I growing up in Orange County, Outspoken was one of the first live bands that I really fell in love with, and I thought they were so big. Like the singer had a fucking cordless mic. Yeah, he and, did. And they were, <laughs> and then he stole from Insight, and they were. They just seemed That's like such. Is. They just such like see, seemed like such professionals, even though they were only a few years older than me. Um, and when I heard a new exclusive track come out, I was like, "This song is." 
this, this song is awesome. I love this outspoken song. I actually like it better than the songs on the current. And um, I think it's a good, a really good addition to the comp. This song, I was never huge into outspoken, but like going back and listening to this comp, I was like, I need to probably like give them more of a shot. Cause this is a cool song. Um, they weren't like, they were on my radar in the nineties and whatever, but I, I never, I feel like they were a little like slow or something for me. Yeah. Like at the time, like it wasn't really what I was, they weren't a th- like a thrash hardcore. Yeah. Like it wasn't what I was dialed into, but now listening, I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. But I feel like the one thing about them, <clears throat> unfortunately, and I think this is just like, probably true of a lot of bands from the eighties and nineties was, I think <clears throat> outspoken were like a sick live band yeah, and, they were. and seeing them live was just always like such a great experience, but it wasn't really until the current and spark and that sort of like, they started to dial it in for the studio and like, but that means there's this whole bunch of me, their music that just sort of like didn't really get captured the way you remember it at the shows. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that the, the album it's notoriously suffers that whole, that studio is called elbow. A light in the dark. Uh, and, I yeah, think that's and, why. Cause my friend had a cassette of mm-hmm. the album and I remember being like, it sounds kind of like Henry Rollins singing. Kind of muddy. Like, oh, yeah. I always 90s. thought it kind of sounded like chain. Like the, he's got that like passionate, like, emotional kind of chain mm-hmm. scream. Well, the seven oh, inch similar tone maybe is, in the yeah. voice. I'll have to but revisit. I, so I saw them and I would see them. They were, I think maybe the second or third show that I ever saw. And it was outspoken lifetime resurrection mm. ashes and grip and DC. God, did I play that? I think you might have. That's why I brought it up. Um, like, yeah, it was at St. Stephen's. I, think I did play there. There was I, a big fight outside. Was that the one where someone got maced? <laughs> they were like maced inside the show. Wait, are you, yes. The riot. This- I'm trying to, because I remember when we played DC. Oh no, you know what? When we this was DC, we played with Endpoint. So mm. oh, I did not go to that show. There. But yeah. I I do have to ask though because my first hardcore show official was Lifetime Resurrection at a place called Club Asylum. Upstairs. That was my first show, I think. With no, them. was it really? Yeah, yeah. And the lights sure went out. The power went out at the uh, start of the that set. Was like, 30 years ago. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, he does. Uh, yeah, I, I remember. But yeah, um, <laughs> I really loved Outspoken. So this was cool to hear. Like, I think the current, I loved the current. And we would kind of like study the record in preparation for the live shows. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it was awesome to hear like an extra track. Mm-hmm. But man, that was my first show. That's so, that's awesome nice. that you played that. That was a <laughs> sick show. It was Jason just scary. Put, Jason and put small. Outspoken in, the, in his top. Orange County hardcore bands when we were talking. Uh-huh. Yeah. Remember? He said he put them over instead. Did I say that? I, I mean, that's crazy talk. He was, he was like, I had too much warm milk that day. Jeez. <laughs> that might have been too much coffee, but yeah. Will, hey, I, I, what, are, are people like revisiting instead now is like a, yes. a great Dude. band? Or, I mean, I okay. always <laughs> 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 I wasn't I, I wasn't a fan. <laughs> Jason is kind of like, they're cool, but like, I'm like, I, lo- I love them. But. I thought yeah. the seven was cool. <laughs> a different podcast, though. A different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> hey, track, track four, Super Touch. This is not for me today. Yes. Dude, this love. is sick. Love, love Super Touch. Love this song. I think it sucks that they didn't get to do that record. Like, 
I think this is one of Super Touch's better recorded songs. Again, it, it, Super Touch is, is it's absolutely one of those bands where like, God, I wish that I had fucking produced The Earth Is Flat. Because yeah. that record, like when they were, when Earth Is Flat was about to come out and before that, I was going to, I was literally going to Super Touch shows every week. If they were playing anywhere from DC to fucking Maine, I was there. And like, I was, I fucking love that band. And so that was the thing, like better was like the beginning of what I felt was like going to be an amazing new record for them. I was so psyched that they had finally figured out like how to get into the studio and capture this thing that I love so much. And then they broke up, <sighs> but, uh. <laughs> but for me, Mark Ryan, more than any other kid in the fucking hardcore scene is the most effortlessly cool person and it comes out in the way he sings in his body language in his vocals in his lyrics like the guy to me just like again like he's a super close friend and he knows how i feel about him <laughs> he knows that i just like i i adore him he's he's and he's still that person today which I love, but this song to me, like was very much like, I, I was very excited for it. It felt like a harbinger of an amazing record that never happened. Yeah. I think like I've, I had said, I don't want to talk too much about earth is flat. That's one of my favorite, like rev LP proper, like as in like not a reissue, not a discography. And um, I think it was almost came out too early too. Like if it came out in 1992 or something, maybe it would have been even more big because like it almost has these grunge vibes to it like well i think the problem is that they never toured right like so people like didn't really get to see them the way like a touring band at that time would have you know if, if people got to see the band that i went to see every fucking week they would have been the biggest band in the world mm. they were amazing I love hearing that. So I love Searching for the Light. And uh, and when I put this on in 2020, I was like, this song rules. I think maybe in the past, I think maybe when the comp came out, I might have skipped this song. But when I heard it, when we were listening in preparation for this, I thought, man, this is an awesome song. So it's cool. This I need to check great. out some live videos, man. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. And the mosh was strong. <laughs> yeah. and then, but, it's like, but they had like a whole different, like they didn't sound like anyone else. We um we talked about them on the way it is and together episodes. All oh, right. I always liked that they they drew from DC because that was my mm-hmm. that's how I got into hardcore was like DC stuff. And I'm a big, big, big fan of Scream. And I thought mm-hmm. that they kind of channeled that vibe of especially like the mid-period scream. That's exactly right. A hundred percent. And he and and, and they would have been absolutely the first people to say it. And like, you know, one of, one of the most endearing things that Mark ever did for me, uh, one year for my birthday in like 1991 ish, early nineties, at some point he gave me an original rights of spring t-shirt. And I fucking almost lost my mind because I knew that that shirt meant something to him. You know what I mean? Like he was that. So like, it was so DC, that's what we bonded over, you know? So, yeah. yeah. Can I say and a I quick story that. real quick? I know we're going long, but <laughs> so I, I started screen printing like maybe five years ago and um, I screen printed a bad brain shirt 
it was like a bad brains bootleg shirt. And then uh, Chris Daly was like, man, I really like this shirt. And I said, well, I'll trade you for a Texas, the reason shirt. So we had this like cool moment <laughs> where, you know, I was just getting into screen printing for me. That was like a big deal that Chris Daly would want something that I printed. And he got, That's he awesome. uh, sent me one of the, uh, the Texas chain ripoff mm, shirts too. Great shirt. Oh, oh wow. So, <laughs> this oh, was, I go. think someone bootlegged the shirt. It wasn't like a, an original one, but it was something okay. where he was like, I have a bootleg I, I, I'll send to you. So part of my vast collection. Bit of bow to Chris. <laughs> yeah. Awesome drummer. I know. And then don't get me started on Jets to Brazil because me and Javier will talk about Jets. To, like we were already like punishing Jeremy from Insight. Like I was like, cool, Insight, love Insight. But I was like, so Jets to Brazil. But anyway, so yeah. next track, Far Side, Moral Straight Jacket. Uh, I think that it's super interesting that this song was recorded specifically for this comp. Um, and again, growing up, seeing Farside a lot and knowing that bit of information, I think that's really cool. I don't really enjoy this Farside song too much. Just, I, I don't I really like this comp. I, <laughs> there's a few snippers on here for me. We okay. always get that. Like people be like, why is Javier even doing this podcast? Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't really. I, I love, me. I love the seven inch. I love rigged. I love uh, Rochambeau. I don't really like anything after rigged personally but uh as a fan of the band in general and i really i really appreciate that this was an exclusive recorded for this album i I feel like there's a different vibe when um you know a band had a track hanging around versus when a band recorded something and uh and i and it's funny like it makes me think actually the the promise ring texas split too because like when promise ring were like making that track they decided that they were going to like write this super well heavy track for the promise ring because they thought we were going to come in and like do some fucking metal shit or something Mm -hmm. and then we came in and wrote this wimpy track and they were just like oh come on um but like so (laughs) that's one of my favorite texas songs though (laughs) (laughs) but farsight sort of like i think also you know there was this consciousness of what they were contributing to and like who was going to be on it and sort of like how they wanted it to sit so i think it has a little bit more like it still very much feels like what they were doing at that time but i think there was also this sense that they knew how much i appreciated like pushing a little bit mm-hmm. and and to also have acoustic guitars on a hardcore record i'm into yeah. it let's do it yeah it you definitely know? changes the the direction of the the track listing even more because it's like you know starts out and then every like it gets a little bit quieter and super touches a little bit mellower and then all of a sudden you get the far side track and it starts out with that acoustic and you're like whoa what's this isn't like a completely hardcore compilation anymore yeah Yeah. but that's that song also Okay, so I'm a guitar player, right? Mm. That song riffs. Mm. There's some sick riffs on that song yes. <laughs> that I really appreciate. A well placed go. It has. Yeah. So <laughs> this, the lyrics are great, though. I think the lyrics, yeah. the I know you're as perverted as me. Like I really like that a lot. This is yeah. my this is my hot track. Oh, this, nice. Yeah. yeah. Oh wow. This, this there's so many parts of this song too. Mm-hmm. Like more than any other song. Like it's it pushes the six minute mark. Mm-hmm. But it's like how like Metallica would have a six minute song and you wouldn't know. <laughs> like it's like that. Like you you almost don't realize it's as long as it is. Yeah. Um, his vocals sound so good because I'm a person that you know like singers, and uh, you know I think 
it just, I love this song. I love the lyrics. I love, and I, and again, I like this version better than the Monroe Doctrine version, even though I, I like that one too. Um, I just think there's something about this one. I think the acoustic guitars come out more in, in the antimatter mm-hmm. one. And um, like everything about it, the go, and then it goes into the, <laughs> it's, got, it's literally got everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this, this is my hot track. Nice. Nice. Um, at one point in time, the next track would have been my hot track um, because I, uh, I like this version of 108's Arctic better than the album version. I think that it's more raw. It's a little bit more punchy. And like I, I think that it's cool that it was recorded for a seven inch that never came out. Like to think of what, if 108 would have had a, you know, a seven inch record. Um, and this record, this song is just such a fucking ripper. And the lyrics, you know, if you're an angsty hardcore kid, that doesn't give a fuck about Krishna consciousness. And then if you're a angsty hardcore kid who does give a fuck about Krishna consciousness, it hits the same way, you know, hollow are the bones of lonely. I need a blanket to warm me from the chill of my emptiness. Like I've felt those lyrics many times. Um, but today this is not my hot track. <laughs> this, was one I, this was one I struggled. I struggled with whether to pick it as a hot track mm-hmm. too. Same same thing. I think uh, Rob Fish is one of the best hardcore vocalists of all time. Yeah. Like I think that his voice is just always so powerful. Anything he puts vocals on just sounds so urgent and aggressive and emotional and just all these things. And this is a top 108 song. When they play it live still, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll go a little nuts, I'll yeah. admit. it's definitely a sick live song for sure yeah as nuts as i go um and i do i don't i feel like i can't decide whether i like this version or the threefold misery because i love them both but uh this is a sick song yeah what is the um (laughs) for some reason when we started talking about 108 live i was thinking that for there was a good period of time where vic used to um what is the song where he's like another sucker subscribes to the norm? Oh, what? from uh, songs of separation. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, another pale sinks into the mainstream. Pale. Yeah. Oh yeah, I think it was pale. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And like he was, he always used to say, for like a period of time, every time I was at a 108 show, he would say, "Another sucker subscribes to Norm Zine." And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so that's that's antimatter in 108. But obviously, like you know, Rob had to be on this comp. Like he's my best friend in the entire world. Still he's, uh, you know, he was there for me at ridiculous times. And like, you know, when we became friends, we met at a Krishna temple in Philly and he, so my, my impression of Rob was more from the eighties from going to the anthrax, uh, late, late, late eighties and early nineties going to the anthrax. I I was friends with these kids on Long Island that used to drive up there every week and we'd go to shows and I'd always see Rob standing on the side of the stage. And my friends were always like, that's Dick Rob release. And that's what they basically decided that he was (laughs) Dick Rob release. Because I guess did he, cause he has that, that he, I guess he can, 
because I've met him and he's a really sweet guy, but I think he totally. can be, I can see people are probably intimidated. At the time, I think like people just thought he was full of himself, you know? And, mm. and to be fair, like, I think he would have said, yeah, I was totally a dick back then. Like, um, when I met him, I was, maybe that's why we got along so well, because I was just like, I felt immediately connected to him. And I didn't think he was a dick at all. And it was sort of like, I need to know more about this person because I need to figure out if he's actually the dick that everyone thought he was. And the more I got to know him, like the more I was just like, no, man, this person's actually like, I I feel like this person's my brother. Like it was crazy. And like within like six months of beating him, um, like I was actually living in a temple at that time. And I was getting ready to move out. I was like, I fucking can't be here anymore. Like, I hate this. And Rob's like, you should just move in with me. And I was like, don't you live with your dad? And he's like, yeah. I go, don't you have to ask your dad? He's like, no. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I literally just showed up on his doorstep. His dad was like, yeah, come on in. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, that was that. So, you know, for me, his sort of presence in everything I do like hardcore wise is always there. Like if I'm going to do something hardcore related, he's in the mix. Yeah. I mean, I remembered always reading too in the zines and interviews with you and uh, you know, just the, the love you guys have for each other, which was always inspiring. Cause like it was, you know, over 30 years ago, you guys are still tight to this day. Like I love, I love hearing stuff like that. Like that's why I loved doing the gorilla biscuits interview and seeing those guys have this, yeah like love for one another. Um, Cause I think sometimes people get so entrenched in like the drama and beef. So it's nice right. to just have like, yeah, we we're best friends. We've been friends since, you know, 1989. We're still best. It's friends nice now. to have like, a friend that you actually never had beef with. <laughs> like yeah. we never had a, Rob and I, we, we, we don't fall out. It's just not what we do. So. <laughs> and it's funny that you guys met here in, in Philly at the, the the temple just kind of a neat little uh yeah. aside but it's, it's of the times obviously that i know that was very like, of the time that was the that was like the the hub for hardcore which is so funny now to think about um but that was the, that was the place yeah <laughs> so i loved looking glass self loved looking glass self i loved steps when I heard this song, Snapcase Vent, I knew that this band was no longer for me. And <laughs> I do not enjoy this song and I don't enjoy anything after. But that's I'm, insane to me. To I, me progression, hey, progression. There the is a very like there's a line in the sand, and I feel like you either like one snapcase or the other snapcase. You like lowercase snapcase or uppercase S. Which one's progression? Which one's progression through unlearning? That's, I mean, caboose. Is that lowercase? Yeah, yeah that's. What I'm saying is that lowercase. Oh. Yeah, that's newer. And to me, I'm that's lowercase. unlistenable to me. Yeah. No, I, you're, you're, I mean, insane. we've we've argued about this before, yeah. but you are crazy. I also love this. The, is not the, even an the argument. This here. is like arguing about. This is about arguing about climate change. Or yeah, this, or this. <laughs> you're just you're just wrong. <laughs> well, you know what's crazy? You know, do, do you want to know what's crazy? Speaking of like you know earlier, we talked about online groups. There's a lot of people that think this way. And I don't know if it's a generational thing because when progression through unlearning came out, I was 16, that was 97. And it was the freshest, like coolest sounding hardcore. Like 
it was different even though i was entrenched in like the youth crew stuff it was like a breath of fresh air of like mixing like helmet and quicksand and i love that like that's really the only so my, snap case i listened to my snap case trajectory is like okay first victory seven inch no looking glass self meh i was kind of like oh, i get why people like it but i didn't really care for it and I, I also didn't really like the recording compared to what it sounded like live. i'll give you that yeah so yeah. there was that steps came out and i was like hmm yeah. Like now all of a sudden I was paying attention. I was sort of like, okay. Like I sort of appreciated um, the direction that Scott, particularly Dressler was going yes. in like guitar wise. Yes. Um, but for me, progression was just like, holy shit. Like that was like, to me, like I knew that when everything is said and done, this record is going to be like canon. This is like hardcore canon material. This is like the shit that I want <laughs> buried in a fucking treasure chest to be opened up, you know, hundreds of years from now. And people say, what was 90s hardcore like? I want them to hear that record. I love it. I agree. I mean, first, it starts off with Caboose. <laughs> you know, I will say this is this is one of the only instances I'm looking through here where, well, a few where I like the, um, I do like the, progression version more than this one i don't know mm -hmm. if that's just because i am so used to the the progression one the recording or whatever but um i love this song vent and i love i think it was probably because it was one of those situations where they now had begun to play it out and then when they recorded it it was like oh okay now we know how to like mm -hmm. play it this is like a, <laughs> a demo version almost I, yeah, I'm gonna, yeah yeah i'm gonna interject and say that this is your hot track <laughs> now i feel like this has to be my hot track because you're so <laughs> trust me for years i've been like i can't believe that you don't like progression through on well i'm gonna go ahead and chime in and say i'm with hav and for that reason this song is not for me but out of full respect <laughs> i'm gonna go back and listen to progression through unlearning dude it's sick it's like, i'll go back and listen to it sick. there's a part on progression through unlearning that's like a ripoff in the best way of the quicksand song divorce. Like it takes, like, I, see, I thought down. that I remember hearing that Snapcase LP and thinking that they were lifting from quicksand a little bit is what I thought. But in I, a good see, way. I see it as this, I see, I see Snapcase as sort of one band that more than any other band were sort of in dialogue with a lot of bands. Mm. Like I don't, I didn't see them necessarily lifting things because everything that they did to me made sense in the Snapcase universe. But it was like, like they were in dialogue with us. Like I felt like I was doing shit that I was like, Oh, this is kind of Snapcase-y. You know what mm. I mean? Like, because like, yeah, and they yeah. were definitely doing shit. They told, you know, they would tell me, you know, I, John Salemi would be like, Oh, you know, this, you know, that thing you do in Texas, this, this song or whatever, check uh -huh. this out. You know, there was, it was always like a cool dialogue. Like, and I feel like, you know, that's how I make music too. Like I really was always paying attention to what other bands were doing. Like to me, the breakdown in something to forget is in dialogue with garden variety. You may not hear it, but I know where it came from. Mm -hmm. Right. There's, there's something going on there that I, I, you know, and again, most people are going to be like, I don't hear it, whatever. Yeah. But, but Snapcase very much did that. They definitely had moments where they were like in dialogue with like bands like Refused or like bands like, you know, bands that they were touring with, that they were mm -hmm. exposed to, 108, you know, things like that. Um, but they were always very 
Like their identity to me is so strong still to this day. I saw them play a couple of years ago and I was just like, it was like, I had such an amazing time. Like they were just killing. I mean, I remember I was standing there watching them with Lou from sick of it all. And we were both just like, fuck this band. Even sick, <laughs> even, even sick of it all. Um, that's what I was going to say. You, you took some, and they'll admit it. Like on that yours truly yeah. album, they, you could tell they were like, kind of taking some notes from Snapcase. For sure. I mean, at, there was a period of time where, like, I'll put it this way. Like, this was actually a thing that Texas used to talk about. <laughs> Every time we, we hit a new milestone, like, let's say, like, wow, you know, we just played to fucking 800 people, like, headlined a show. We're bigger than Snapcase. Like, this was always, this was our <laughs> joke. Because Snapcase were so fucking ubiquitous and big and yeah. so well-respected and loved. And that was what we wanted to be. <laughs> so like every milestone, that was the joke. We're bigger than Snapcase, you know. That was how much we were we respected them, even though we were like friends with them. You know what I mean? So right. And anyway, like, I just when when I found out people didn't think Progression for, uh, was their best record, it blew my mind because they were. That was one of the first shows. It was on that tour that I went to by myself, like took a train into the city because I loved Snapcase that much. And I was like, I can't miss this. I remember being scared to death. Like, you know, it's just funny. I was like 17, but like taking a train by myself into the city, not knowing if I'm going to see anyone I know, but I had to see that band. And they were, especially at that time, they were so good live. Um, and they were touring Still. with like, Yeah. They were touring with like, really, it's crazy. Good riddance. And AFI and like, you know, and AFI became its whole own thing, but like they were just so good. And I have a special place in that album. Yeah. I usually, it's the only one I usually reach for, but um, I played looking glass self recently and thought this is cool and steps, uh, but progression, but I'll go back and re-listen. Scott Dressler was the first guitar player that I ever saw with my own eyes that was using like a line six pedal board. This is like 1994. And I was like, Whoa. Oh my God, this is so professional. <laughs> These guys are actual musicians. Holy shit. Yeah, it was crazy. He lent me a gold top Les Paul to play when Texas opened for Quicksand in New York. And uh, oh, crazy. I was, it was the same thing. I was just like, I can't afford this shit. He's like, yeah. take mine. I was like, okay, great. <laughs> Wild. So now we're at the halfway point. Up next is track eight, Threadbare, Weatherman, Hoff. And this song is not for me today. <laughs> you know, I, it, which is surprising I think we need because to just cut you out of the podcast. I know, You're seriously. I, I, I grew up. Do you like hardcore? <laughs> no, I like metalcore. <laughs> no, it's, um, I actually grew up listening to a lot of really heavy, disembodied, 108, overcast, bloodlet. Like these are some of my favorite okay, bands. So you do like metal. I do like, but yeah. I also, I like it all. I hate to say like, I like it all, but I do no, like you it don't, all. Clearly. I, I, <laughs> so one of the, I will say in, in his defense though, that's, I mean, apart from the fact that I just talked to Javier every day anyway, before this, I was like, if I'm doing, you know, when we came up with the idea for this, I was like, I want to do it with Javier because I don't want it to be somebody that I'm just going to agree with, that's going to have the same taste as me and circle boy, jerking. Yeah. He's definitely, uh, proved <laughs> like he's, he's proved, uh, he's followed up on that because yeah. like we definitely, it's very rare. We even have the same hot track, even on something that we like. Yeah. yeah. And I love him for it, but yeah, I like the singer for Threadbare's voice 
a lot, but this track today is not for me. He's got a great voice though, man. His I voice mean, is I awesome. can, I, I think Threadbare is extremely heavy. They're good at what they do. Great dudes. Mike, Mike Paradise. I've traveled with him. You know, I, I, I really like them, but I just, I, I just Threadbare just never really clicked for me. And I, I, I like the other why. releases, but I don't, I don't remember, I don't really remember them too well, to be honest. Mm. They, I mean, they definitely weren't um, sort of at the cusp of sort of what was going on. They weren't uh, like a huge band at the time, but they definitely were a band that uh, they were sort of like a band's band, mm-hmm. you know, like all of the other bands were like, have you fucking seen Threadbare? Holy shit. You know, oh, okay. like it's like a closely were... guarded secret, almost like Cosa Nostra. Like I, I this thing is mine. <laughs> I like this and like, band and fuck Ryan, you, you don't, you know, definitely as a vocalist, because when you're going to do music like that, mm-hmm. the vocalist is sort of like, the number one thing, right? Yeah. Like for, for me, like that has to be on point. And then, but you know, realistically, everybody in that band, I think really, and especially Mike as a drummer, you know, like I remember thinking he stood out so much. I was trying to get him in other bands, you know, after Threadbare broke up. Cause I was just like, this guy can't go to waste. Yeah. Um, you know, it, they, to me just sort of like were a band that I met very randomly on tour and sort of like, saw and immediately understood what they were doing, understood how great they were going to be. Um, and I actually do think that they, that the records that they've put out have stood the test of time. I've listened to those records. I've gone to see them play when they did the reunions, I think four or five years ago. Okay. Um, and it was like, they were sick. It was amazing. Where were they from? Minneapolis. Okay. Okay. Um, I'll go yeah, back and, and I think that that was part of it too, because Minneapolis Minneapolis was one of those scenes and they were sort of mixed Minneapolis slash Mankato, but like those, those two areas, Minnesota, I guess in general at the time in the nineties was very mixed with like that sort of like raw crust punk scene. Like you had, you had code code 13, you had code 13 and disembodied, like so polarizing. There's just a, there was a real sort of like, just dirtiness to, mm-hmm. to what was going on there. So like, to me, what I loved about it was that Threadbare sort of embodied that from a musical pers- perspective, but then you saw them and they were this, they were like a J crew ad. It was so yeah, cute. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, I, I, you know, I, I adore them. I, and this song is one of my favorites. Also to kind of tie the rest of the album back together in a weird way, Mike Paradise played drums in 108 for a while. On that tour documentary. He's yeah. In. And Dustin Perry currently plays in Snapcase. Yep. So it's like the, the, the way to, and way to Dustin, tie the room together. Dustin and I were roommates in Chicago mm. when they asked him to play in Snapcase. And then he left me and moved to Buffalo. I had nice. to find uh, a new okay. It was fun. Uh. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I never forgave him. Fuck him. So <laughs> now that I, I see, I didn't even think they're from Minneapolis because I love Minneapolis stuff, but, um, but like Prince. And so yeah, I was gonna say, what other mini? Oh, yeah, and, and Husker Du and replacements, right. yeah, yeah. Um, right. but this track, I don't even necessarily want to say it's not for me, but it's just this could be playing in the other room right now, and I wouldn't know what it was. Like, it just mm. never, for whatever reason, it's one of the ones that never like grabbed me. Um, whereas, like, as soon as any of these other ones, pretty much that we've talked about comes on, I'll know immediately, like, oh, yeah, I know this song, so it's just not one that grabbed hold and i never heard any of their other material 
Uh, I have oh, to yeah. say the live banter that Siv does on track nine, don't got to prove it. It's I've always like almost liked that more than the song just it's really because good. it's like, fuck you. Like it embodies what it's like, what it was like to be a hardcore punk kid, you know, and not accepted by society and just being able to give everyone the middle finger and do your thing anyway. I, and I love that so much. Yeah. So I was going to say uh, like, I was on the fence about this track mm-hmm. um, because at the time, uh, you know, I was really trying to get just like studio tracks. I didn't want a live track. And, but that was really all they had at the time. And it was either put that on or not have them. And I kind of felt like it wasn't, it just didn't feel right to not have them at that moment. Like I, I, I felt like they needed to be on the comp. Um, but when I got this, that banter is what made me go, yes, mm. because it's so Civ, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I think that people, you know, when I, when I think of Civ, um, you know, some, I, I, that whole thing about like, you know, Walter writes the lyrics and grill biscuits and all this stuff. Like part of the reason why that works for me is because there's Civ is very sort of like stream of consciousness and just sort of like says whatever the fuck. And sometimes it gets them into trouble. And, like, <laughs> yeah. and that's like, you know, and that's sort of why I liked the banter because it felt like very real to who he is. And the name of the band is Sid. So I was like, so this is central to him. And I sort of like, was like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of in, I love this. Yeah. So it's a real good song. It's a real good live song. And it's a good song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and and sure. live song recordings are usually not great, but this is really good. And I really like at the end. Is it? Do you know where it was taken from? Like where was not it recorded? Uh, it's got to it be says, Europe. It says here, uh, recorded live at the Camden Underworld in London, England. Dude, I love it. I, you, I wonder if the rest of that recording is around, you know? There's some you can songs hear the dudes like you can hear this dude's like real thick kind of cockney accent mm-hmm. singing along at the oh. end of the, at the end of the song it's so cool right you remember that um well i i was just gonna say without so it's funny because i think don't gotta prove it wasn't one of my favorite songs on the civ album even though i, I like it but mm-hmm. it's not i wouldn't but this version is better than the I album agree. like i think it's a little more aggressive and a little more anthemic um, I mean, I love that first Civ record, like, and I don't think there's any skippers on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that a live song on a comp with all these studio songs, like Norman was saying, it's a little bit like risky, but because of the banter and because of the fact that it actually made the song better, I'm glad it's on here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And I will say if, if there wasn't banter, I wouldn't have used it probably. Mm-hmm. Cause uh, I would have just said, what's the point? Yeah. yeah. Like I wanted something that was unique. And I think they gave me something both unique and very specific to who they were. And that's antimatter. Yeah. That's and great. I love that's the awesome. um, minor threat bass line. You can hear it while he's talking. You can hear Arthur playing um, little, I guess is a little. Don't friend. say that. Cause then we might have to pay. <laughs> <laughs> that was a minor threat. That was uh, just noodling. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, track 10, I'm sorry, but I, I don't even know what it sounds like. That's, to me, almost that always a skipper to me. It's just not for me. Garden Variety just never was not not really a fan. And it kind of goes, maybe to me, I lumped them in with like 
game face core where it's just like melodic. So not. Pop, yeah, it's, not. it's not for me. So. Darker. And, then- I, and I listened to this in preparation for this episode and I still I couldn't tell you what Garden Variety sounds like. I'm sorry. So Garden Variety was a band that I, I feel safe to say, um, you know, I had a big hand in sort of like every sort of major development of, of their like sort of public consciousness. I, I saw them by accident sort of like they they played a show. I think it was like, it was on Long Island somewhere and uh, they were selling their demo tape and it was their first show. And uh, I think mind over matter played or something. And I just remember feeling like the first thing I thought when I saw them was, Oh, this is cool. This sort of like, it's almost like jawbreaker meets replacement, something like that. Like that was sort of like the vibe. It wasn't pop yep. punk. I certainly never really thought about it in terms of like game face style or anything like that. And like Roman, Anthony Roman, their singer, like had this like really cool sort of like um, smoker's voice that, you know, that I like to, to say, and, and being that, most hardcore kids didn't smoke. I think he did. <laughs> and it actually like, it actually did give him a gruff voice. So it was sort of like, you know, there was something there. I didn't really know what he was singing about. I didn't know anything about it, but I knew that the, I like the vibe. I like the melodic sensibility. I took the demo home and I was like, this is, a, this is a band with a future. And I was like really stoked on them. And then when um, they signed to Gern Blanston, which was Charles from Rorschach's label, and uh, I was super psyched for that. Record comes out. I think, again, like they were doing stuff that put them across the board in terms of who they were, like who they could play with. It was so quintessentially antimatter to me. They were coming from a place where they could play with any hardcore band. They could play with any punk band. They could play with indie bands. They just sort of like they were more of a vibe than a genre. And to be frank, I honestly don't even think that there's another band that quite sounds like them or does what they do like to this day. Like there's, and to the point where it was just like, as a songwriter, I was also just really like blown away by sort of like the complex structures that they would create that still felt you know, again, like there were elements of it that, yeah, you could say like, oh, that's like pop punk but not really because they were always throwing these discordant chords or like doing these like uh, just really sort of like just uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, curmudgeonly sort of like lyrical vibes. And they <laughs> you know, were a trio, right? Right. I mean, yeah. yeah. Which is also like cool. Like, and, you know, my take on them was and I think I remember from the antimatter interview, like I loved where they were coming from a different place. Like they were like, I'm a huge Husker Du fan, replacements fan. And they were, they were taken from that whole scene. And the first time I heard them was on another comp. Uh, they were on that punk USA comp on lookout mm-hmm. with uh, like screeching weasel and the queers. And you're right. They fit in on, on this antimatter. They fit in on that, punk usa and i can definitely see how you would they, they kind of embody the whole the whole vibe of antimatter which was attractive to me from day one was that it was all types of music um, like to me 
people will say like quicksand is quote unquote post hardcore. Mm-hmm. But to me, this song, this is it. Mm-hmm. This is post hardcore to me. This is what happens after hardcore. Quicksand maybe happens after that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even a graduation, but it's sort of like, you know, you take, you take these different, you know, routes. Uh, and I think that they, they were just so unique and I just, I can't say enough good things about them. They're, they're a band that I was just go to my grave. They just actually reissued their entire discography in a box set and it's finally on Spotify. And I'm just so excited that all of it exists now for people to rediscover. Yeah, I want to get that box too. set actually. I'll check yeah. that out also. Jason, I think it seems like something up. up yeah, I, yeah it's a good I think it would be too. Um, and I know the artwork for the LP, like I could recognize it from, you know, very far away, but I'll, I'll dive into them. Yeah, good. Yeah, good song. Um, I, 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 just because it's not my hot track doesn't mean, you know, good track. Yeah. Wouldn't skip. I, I don't know if I'd skip. I was an undertow, I don't know if I want to say super fan, Same. but I fucking but this love song undertow. is not for me this song is not for me this is one Are of you my being serious this is one of my least favorite undertow songs what? actually norman yeah. i'm me. so sorry you are kidding me i swear at this point i swear i'm living for this yeah. uh i i this song for me is a it's one of their most boring songs like what? An and the, like... the only thing that i would skip faster than this would be the the redone songs on the last seven inch you know, there's wow. like the four song seven inch and then they redo old songs. I just, I just don't really, I don't I know. Like, I feel like we brought you onto an episode of like impractical jokers. <laughs> you're getting <laughs> we're, like, right we're trying now. to see like, yeah, we're trying to see how, how well, long until my, you're like, that's it. This is, <laughs> I, so, but the okay. Thing is, all right. Yeah. I, I'll, let, let me, let me, let me, uh, I'll, I'll give you some, um, some, some room here. Sure. Because I, I do think that of the songs that I got, this one for me was probably like, I didn't feel like it lived up to their potential, like even as a song, cause mm-hmm. I've seen them play this song live mm-hmm. and like, I know what it could sound like. I didn't necessarily think this song or, was captured the best way. So I'll, I'll definitely give you that. I'd still stand behind the song. I think it's an amazing song, but I don't know that it was really recorded perfectly or the way uh, I would. Yeah, again, like as a completist, because Undertow did have a lot of songs on different comps and splits and all this stuff. So you had to have it all. And so I was like, ah, oh, this, this song's got to go on like the Undertow mix, you know, discography cassette that I'm making, but it's not my favorite Undertow song. Uh, like of all the songs, awesome. I'd say this, this song sort of sounds sonically, not like the song itself, but sonically, it feels more like an early 90s mm-hmm. kind of recording than maybe the other songs on the record. So mm-hmm. to me, it sort of stands out that way. Mm-hmm. Damn, I think this song is awesome. Mm. It's just yeah, easy. It's an awesome song. It, like you hear it, and it's just <laughs> like, you know, like it's just like it starts out and it's just got, you know, kill this pain. It's just like, I want to see it live. I hear it. I want to see it live. I want to be at the show rocking back and forth up front, seeing this live. Right. When I hear the song, it's awesome. But yeah. I also really love, I really love Petty Bone's voice. I think mm-hmm. it's, his voice is killer. And this is like, is this maybe one of the first times that he he did like the talk, the talking? No, there's talk like singing. There's okay. so much talk singing and okay. undertow. Yeah, and yeah. I can't wait to get to the Himsa seven inch on Rev that he sang on because I fucking love that record. <laughs> it's a good that's, that's Javier. Hot track. 
That's me. <laughs> Love it or leave it. But this is not my hot track, but this is that, uh, that is Javier. A so good song. for yeah. me, this I put in the same boat as Outspoken, where I'm like, oh, this is cool. Mm-hmm. I should probably like dive into their discography more because mm-hmm. at the time this wasn't really what I was into with with hardcore bands. So I'll have to check out. I think they have a discography on Indecision. Yes, they do. Yeah, um, but they it's called pro- Everything. Okay. They were one of the prominent mm-hmm. bands at the time, them and Outspoken. You know, yeah. I think they were. And keep in, keep in mind, like, I'll bring it up again. You guys are a couple years yeah, older. So I is. was getting, I was hearing this stuff sort of when they were already done. Yeah. Fair. And that, you know, that's a really good tool for a compilation is to introduce you to new bands. You know, if you're more like you're a mouthpiece fan, but you're like, Oh, outspoken's cool. Or, you know, I wasn't really into strife before or Snapcase before, but now I'm exposed to it. And I think that that's, especially in the nineties, there's so many good comps and they all were very useful in, in that manner. Um, this strife song circuit. I love this song. I do. I love Stri- I'm a huge Strife Stan fan. Stan almost said Stan. I and um and I also appreciate Wait for it. No, there's no there's no but. I I really appreciate because they had the Victory 7-inch with Gray and to an end, I think that preceded the In This Defiance and this was recorded at the same time as those two songs and I think that they're all more urgent than in this defiance i don't i'm not really a huge fan of in this defiance but that seven inch and this song i think i could listen to those three songs over in this defiance and so i really i love this song it's not my hot track but i do love this song so we haven't gotten your hot track yet then no wow Mm, mm, that's dwindling down (laughs) down interesting (laughs) yes yeah oh wow I think oh, you know, I know what, what I do want to. I, I can give. I can give a little um, color on something you said earlier, Hop, when you yeah. pointed to the the liner notes and a snapcase, and you talked about the bulldog. The bulldog, right there, yeah. Yeah. So this is. I've never really talked about this in public because it's always been a problem for me. Um, but I can do that now. Sure. So he. Um, so here's the deal. So remember when I said that uh, the first deal I did was with Quicksand because I kind of felt like if it's good enough for quicksand, it should be good for everybody else. So like the deal I did with quicksand was, you know, I think fair and also cheap (laughs) Um, because, you know, you have 16 bands on a comp and I have only so much money that I can spend. So I was like, I want to give every band something, but not a a shit ton of money because then I'd be broke and we'd be fucked. So, uh, so quicksand agreed to a certain price. And I was like, that seems fair and cheap. Good. So, um, then I went to Snapcase and Strife. Now, Snapcase and Strife were both signed to Victory at the time. Okay. So, I had to technically license the tracks from Victory in order to include them on the comp. Tony is an old, he's an old friend. And, like, I've been friends with him forever. And so, I was expecting this to be a completely just chill exchange, like mm-hmm. every other exchange I had with every other friend on the comp. And he turned it into something that it totally wasn't started trying to like, just basically say like threaten me and saying like, I'm not putting these bands on the comp unless they get paid X. And I was just like, I'm not paying you more than I'm paying quicksand. Fuck you. You know, like that's like fucked up. 
And so it took like this almost killed the comp, to be perfectly honest, because I know like I needed to have stripe and stripe and tap case on the comp. That was like a it just had to happen. Like if they weren't on it, I'd feel like this was totally incomplete and I wouldn't want to do it anymore. And so I was trying to get both bands involved and trying to get them to both like tell Tony to shut the fuck up and just, you know, license the tracks. And it went on for like months fighting with this guy because like he felt like he was entitled to more. And it was really just like, it, it fucking bummed me out so hard. And uh, it kind of put a crack in our relationship that honestly, like over the years, he's kind of, he fucked me over again later on, but like, um, you know, because we, we mended it for a minute and then like he did fuck me over again. So whatever the case is, um, the reason that that bulldog exists on the liner notes is because there was a period uh, where finally we were both, neither of us was really budging. And then finally he said, okay, here's the deal. I'll take the deal that everyone else gets, but you have to put the victory logo next to the bands on the line. And I was like, dude, that sucks too, but yeah, whatever. Yeah. And you get to a point where you're like, was, you got to cut your losses. You get, you know, pick your, yeah. no, pick your battles. Like, just like, yeah. I, I, you know, what's funny. I'll say this. When I saw that, I already knew that was what happened. I never noticed that. makes sense today. Like, I legit like, never noticed yeah. it. I, when, as soon as I saw that, the story that you told us, like, it all, it all like fit the, you know, it was like, you just told the prequel. Like I already right. knew. <laughs> I just knew. Like why else? Why else? Would, and it's yeah. funny. Cause like you said, quicksand didn't have the Island logo next to theirs. No. <laughs> didn't have the Atlantic logo next to theirs. Like, no, that's, just that's so when I realized wild. that, that the whole shit, that's and I will say like that's when I realized like hardcore was also moving into a weird fucking place because mm-hmm. I was just like look man when you're trying to act like a major label in a way that major labels aren't even acting yeah what the fuck point. are you even doing yeah well I yeah. remember I was reading with you saying about like you know talking about Texas when you're about to sign to the major label and like you're like look I've been screwed over this was after it was in the um burning fight book I think so that was like after Texas was done and you guys did the two New York shows. So it was like, you know, mid 2000, 2007. And you said something that I remember resonated. It was like, you know, I've been screwed over by indie labels too. And um, it shows you that like, you know, we think, I think in terms of like major label, bad indie label, good, but like, here's a case where like you dealt with Island and I'm, I'm assuming Atlantic to some degree with Civ and yeah. Like they didn't have to have the logo next to it. And then when you think about every hardcore label at that time, really like, like every big hardcore label at that time is somehow represented on that comp probably. And like, and Atlantic and Island and no one gave me any shit at all. They were like, I love it. Let's do it. Let's figure it out. This is the price. Great. You know, and everybody understood because there's a sense again, like when you're talking about hardcore stuff, there's this sense of like, you know, everybody just wants to be fair, right? It's like when you play a show and you're splitting up the pot, right? Like mm. you don't want to be the band that gets 20 bucks when you know you brought in a hundred people or whatever. Right. But it's like, you can figure out like, you know, you can figure it out amongst yourselves. Like I remember the first time I played Gilman street, like that's how they do it. Like, or at least that's how they did it. The first time yeah. we played there, they still you know, do. we literally like, we yeah. sat down 
and played looked at the money and said like, okay, so how are we splitting it? You know, <laughs> and it was just like, okay, cool. This seems fair. Everybody in the agreement. Cool. Great. Done. So that was sort of the same thing. Like I had a pot. I thought, you know what? I don't want to give quicksand more money than everybody else. I don't want to give Civ more money. I don't want to give Snapcase more money. Everybody gets the same thing. It's fair, but cheap. Let's do it. And he was the only person who tried to make a, some shit out of it. And, you know, it, looking at that bulldog on the liner notes bums me out to this fucking day. And it's, it's funny because it can only help the band. Like, you know, we, we come in, we, even with the podcast and even with the fanzine, like, look, we're interviewing these bands. It can only I don't see many instances where it could hurt. Obviously, if the interview said crazy, controversial thing, well, no, even that, you know, there's would no such thing as bad press or whatever. But like putting them and on. I was always, I already had like a, a reputation for being sort of respectful, professional, sort of like, you know, if somebody told me something off the record or like wanted it to be off the record in an interview, which people did, I didn't publish it. You know, like, yeah. So it was like, I already had the reputation. Antimatter was already a thing. There was nothing about this that was going to hurt the victory brand. Exactly. <laughs> like, and, and the thing is too, like, and, and we've done the same thing. Like we've had episodes and, you know, that's why we, we say Hav, Hav is great with editing where people have said, you know what, like, let's have that off the record and we leave it off the record because we want to maintain integrity. Like, I don't want people right. to go, like, oh, don't talk to those guys because you say the wrong thing and blah, blah, blah. But with this comp, I'm just thinking like where his mindset was at because it's so varied that I guarantee there were people that bought it because of, you know, whatever quicksand and then we're like you know what strife's actually pretty cool like yeah didn't think they'd be cool and the fact that they're on this comp and i'm reading the liner notes which i didn't even give my thoughts on the track it's a great strife track um right. i like sorry strife yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, like, uh, I like in this defiance is my favorite uh strife record but yeah it's cool strife's is a cool band i'm glad they're on here even if they had to have the bulldog next to them, because they do, they fit in. Because um, you can't really talk about '90s hardcore, I don't think, without. Yeah, and it was also right. like hard for the bands too. Like, I'll be real. Like, I, I'm not gonna, I won't speak for the bands, but let me speak for them a little bit when I say <laughs> when I say that they were embarrassed by that, mm-hmm. the, the whole uh, thing. You know, like nobody wants to be like, you know, the guy on the fucking you know gym field, like you know, basically with your mom, like stitching your name on your you know shirt or something like you know whatever like right. that's basically what it was you know like yeah. mom tony victory was yeah, like because like they're, <laughs> they're fans too like i would have been pissed if someone's like hey do you want to be on a comp with lifetime and sense field and mouthpiece and whatever i'd be like yeah and then to find the label you know making it hard i'd be pissed yeah yeah so, good song anyway good song yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Photo strife, Andrew. Even Hav likes it. Yeah. Yes. Mikey likes it. Chamberlain. Chamberlain. Oh God. This is my hot track. Yeah. So, yeah. I fucking I love this song. <laughs> and and oddly enough, you this are an is enigma. One of the only Chamberlain slash split lip songs that I like. I saw them probably ninety-four, you know. And the, the, to me, it's like, if you, if you liked ashes 
and you liked bands like that, then you probably liked Split Lip, right? But this song, for whatever reason, is just so captivating to me. The, the chorus, his voice, the like quiet part with the little drum roll. Like it, it, this song is powerful, emotional. Like it's not quite hardcore, but it's, you know, it's in that realm. And to me, they always seemed like they wanted to not be hardcore, but they were lumped in with hardcore because the, that's all that they knew. And so it was like the, the top of that genre. Um, but I just, I can't say enough good stuff about this song. <laughs> I love this song too. I love it. <laughs> but I mean, you know, Chamberlain's to me were like a really important band because they really more than anyone stood out. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, from the first time I saw them in like 1992 or something, they opened for Shelton. And I was just like, God, it's just like, I remember the story. <laughs> what what are these guys doing? Like, you know, like it was, just, but you know, they developed in this band that was just like so. I, it was to me. This was exactly what I think of when I think of antimatter. When I think of that era. When I think of the formless, shapeless era of hardcore, mm-hmm. because there was nothing about this band that sounded punk. Like, and yet they were as much as anybody else was. And we accepted them fully and loved them. And like, you know, I don't know how that happens. I don't know if that was just of the moment. I don't know that a band like Chamberlain could come out tomorrow and be accepted in the same way by hardcore kids. (laughs) Um, You know, it was very of that time. They they had to have come out at that time to be who they are. Yeah, it, it um, and I think they're back now. They have a new album coming out. Um, yeah, uh, with uh, Arctic Rodeo, maybe. Um, yeah. And uh, was that where the story, the shelter, where we got split lipped because like half the crowd flat lapped, flat lapped. That's it. <laughs> I love that story. Like it's basically like uh, they were opening, but they were like a big local draw. So like they're all massive were there, and then when they're done, people left everyone left (laughs) everyone left and shelter you know we had egos as harry krishna as we were we were our feelings were hurt (laughs) but the the false ego you have to let go of the false ego we had to like it was it was it was krishna's arrangement he was teaching us a lesson (laughs) (laughs) so chamberlain is another one where i hear and i'm like i really need to dive into their catalog because i know Mm. that i'll love it um, cause this is a cool song yeah, and it it's like one of those things I'm always reminded, like when I'm listening to comp, like mental note, listen to Chamberlain next time you're on Spotify. And actually, you know, we mentioned off the record, we we're talking about Mike McTurnan. Like I know Mike's a huge fan. Like he, uh, had always told me to, to check them out. So that's going to be on my homework, but they sort yeah. of remind me of not musically, but how they fit in with hardcore, like how one of my favorite bands of the last 10 years, and they're not active really right now, uh, is Title Fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and they remind me of that where they still fit into hardcore, even though they didn't sound like hardcore mm-hmm. at all. What, there's one thing about them that I'll, I'll put this out there because this is something that I repeatedly talk about that I think is so important to talk about. 
which is the way the internet sort of erased regionality. Mm. And I think that this comp was still sort of like in the earliest, earliest stages of the internet where the internet hadn't really affected hardcore in a sort of substantial way. And split lip Chamberlain were fucking Indiana personified. Mm. They could not, if, if they were just exposed to the internet and exposed to YouTube and watching whatever everybody else was doing, um, you know, you lose that sense of regionality and you lose that appreciation for regionality that we had. Mm-hmm. When, when we talk about stuff from back then, we talk about stuff in terms of New York and mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. and Orange County. Just in this conversation, we've been talking about regions that have these clear sounds where when you say it, we understand it. Yeah. Right? Like, I just don't know that that exists in the same way because as soon as somebody does something it's broadcast and reproduced a million times all over the world, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? So it's like, there's no chance for an idea to germinate inside of a, a a town or a city or a state without outside influence or without influencing the outside almost immediately. And, you know, even title fight, like what they were doing, like that's an idea that sort of like when, as they were getting to the end of their, uh, their run before they sort of took that, I don't know if they're broken up, yeah. They sort of are, sort of aren't. I think it's like, like a hiatus, whatever you want to call it. But there was that vibe of, you know, this sort of like shoegazy vibe that everybody started like moving towards that I really wish was tied to a region, but is not. Mm-hmm. It was sort of just tied to the internet. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah. yeah, like it's not, it wasn't like a Wilkes, because they're from like Wilkes Fair. Like it wasn't like a Wilkes yeah. thing. Right. Like I would, I would love for that to have been, you know, an example of regionality, but I just don't see those things happening anymore. So when I hear Chamberlain, I'm just like, these guys are tied to their fucking roots. They were list. This is the music they grew up on. They were filtering it through their experiences in punk and hardcore. This is what came out. How glorious is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. I like this song. Okay. This is a song where I think that this is the power of the comp is that I like strife. I like mouthpiece. I like Lifetime, and then that song snuck in there, and I was like, you know, like, I should check this out. And I think that's the the power of a good comp, mm-hmm. is to expose people to bands that they wouldn't listen to otherwise. And this song definitely did, and it's a memorable track. Not my hot track, but a memorable song, for sure. Have you yeah, had your hot track yet? Not yet. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So next, we're coming to the home stretch. Uh, we have Sensefield, Shady Day. Um, this was another one that I fought with possibly having as a hot track. Um, I'm, I love Sensefield. Uh, Building is one of my favorite Revelation releases. And this song um, sounds like it could have been on that record. Yeah, it's a B-side, um, I was, right? I think so, yeah. I was, yeah, I think it was. I mean, I didn't know John Bunch personally. Like, we were like internet friends. Um, but I was devastated when he passed away just because of, you know, just being a massive fan and then reading actually in that e- emo um, book, the, the interview that he did for the podcast, uh, Washed Up Emo, it was actually his last interview. And he was just mm. such a positive, like, guy and just had seemed to have such a good attitude. And it comes across in the song. His voice is so good. And one of the things that always stuck yes. out to me was in the description for it when you talk about him putting the bubblegum smelling stuff on. I wonder what <laughs> that stuff was. 
No idea. I mean, I don't know. Like pe- <laughs> people who could really sing do a lot of weird stuff. Yeah, sometimes. lots of sprays <laughs> and teas. Yeah, like I heard people yeah. talking about him like warming up, like he would like warm up, do like vocal warm ups yeah. in the car before a yeah. show. Like someone's like, I thought he was on the phone, but he was like warming up. <laughs> uh, Rob Fusco I mean, used to do that too. He used to warm up to like some crazy operatic tape in the van for mm. the down shows. So people definitely have their rituals. I mean, definitely Bunch was like someone that he was always, he was always like a big brother to people. Like, I think he was, that's how people related to him because of the fact that I think he had this relentless optimism for a lot of his, uh, his life. I think that, you know, he went through some shit. He definitely had some, uh, you know, there's, I think we all have, you know, I don't want to say demons cause I feel like that's such a cliche type of thing to say, but like, you know, we all have our realities. Mm. And I think that music for John Bunch was something that from the minute I first heard him sing, I just knew that this was something that was tied to his existence. It was, this is what he did. I don't even feel that way about me, right? Like when I think about playing music, I think about, uh, I'll do it when I'm inspired, right? It's not tied to my sense of being in the way that I felt like it was for John Bunch. And I feel like you hear that in his music, in his songs, in everything he did. Um, in a way that like, you know, I was, the last time I saw John Bunch was at uh, Revelation 25 in Chicago. We played together. And <clears throat> he came up to me after the show was over. We were at the hotel and we were sitting in the lobby and he, this is another uh, attribute of John's that um, was that he was also just like insanely honest and he would say things that sometimes make you feel uncomfortable. And so this was actually what he said, his opening line when he, we sat down and he said, I just want to let you know that when we first booked this show, I resented that you were headlining over us. <laughs> and I was just like, Oh, hi. Okay. Um, (laughs) And he's like, but I just want you to know that I was, I was watching you guys sound check and it just like, everything just came back to me. And I just was like, yeah, of course they are. Like when you guys play, it's like, you guys are living through your music. He's like, when I, when I watched you guys sound check, I felt like I was watching like you too. He's like, and I'm just sitting there like, really? Like I'm blown away by just how like, He's just being so like, not just honest, but also like generous, right? Yeah. <laughs> We're not you too, but you know, for whatever reason, he was just fe- he was in his feelings about it, you know, and he really wanted me to know how much he respected the band, how much he respected me. I never really knew if, you know, obviously, like you could rethink everything now through the lens of sort of what's happened, and you wonder whether or not he was saying goodbye, and like was this you know or was this just bunch on a regular day just being generous and wanting you to feel good and honest about you know who you are and what you do and uh you know i still think about it because we didn't have that chance to say goodbye um and so anyway i'm super happy that this song exists that this is on the record and that i have this palpable tie to him it's a great it's a great song and um I'll let these, I, like I said, I, I'll talk about Sensefield, but I'll, I'll get my chance later on. So 
I'll save it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, Jason, so, have you ever put uh, the next song on a mixtape for a girl? No, I haven't, but I will I say have. it is my hot track. Yeah, I knew it. And, and I got the lyrics <laughs> wrong. Yeah, so, I, so in preparation for the episode, I was like, man, I just love those lyrics when he says, a lifetime now. And then I went and looked up the lyrics. That's definitely not it. He says, uh, I laughed out loud. I laughed out loud. Do you yeah, hate I this band too? I, yeah, I love this. I love this song. And I love that it just takes me back to a time and place of hearing it for the first time. Yeah. When I played it. And I love because Lifetime. This song was only on here. Yes. Until uh, they did the Jersey's discography. Yeah. So, no, no. Jersey's best. I'm saying like even the version. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, plug-in, well, there's something with the plug-in at the beginning of the song that it's just like, boom, transported me back to the first mm-hmm. time hearing it, walking around. It reminds me of like fall season right now. So I just really, I love this song. Even though I had the lyrics wrong and I was feeling this emotional attachment to <laughs> incorrect to, to lyrics. Made up lyrics. <laughs> yes. That's so 90s though, really. Yeah, but I love that. Track. I think like that's, I've been talking about like bands like that where, um, well, like actually I was with, uh, I was hanging out with my partner and, BTS was on the radio <laughs> and he was just like, is this the only song they sing in English? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, how are they this big? <laughs> ah, and I was like, I kind of appreciate the idea that the songs are anything you want them to be. Yeah. I like yeah. that. And who cares? Even if they're in English, the voice almost becomes another <laughs> instrument. It's like, yeah. it's, it's, it does, you don't, you can just hum along stuff. with it. Oh, Seeger yeah. Ross. I no, yeah. It I mean, apply. one of my favorite bands in the world of all time is Cocteau Twins. Mm. I know. Yeah. They, they, they could be reading. I like defy a recipe you to for tell me what that is. Vegetable <laughs> soup over it. Hey, um, so to close this record out, because I know we got to start winding up. I, I'm not super impressed with this mouthpiece song. Wait, I, I didn't get to say anything about Lifetime. What do you got to say about Lifetime? He's from you know, Philly. He's going to have yeah, a time to well, say about uh, Lifetime. See, I was trying to push it along because <laughs> I knew that if you start talking about this song and Lifetime, it's never going to Lifetime deserves some shine. Yeah, yeah what do you got to say? I'll just some go shine really on quick and say <laughs> Lifetime's one of my all-time favorite bands. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a deep personal connection. Hello Bastards is like my, you know, one of the best records from the 90s, I think. Um, Dan Yeeman, great songwriter. Mm-hmm. I love this song. I actually think I do prefer the album version to this one. Mm. I think it was a little more, mm. um, maybe a little more polished. It is. And yeah. it worked It worked for them. Um, and I just love Lifetime. That's Have it. you been to a New Brunswick basement show? Yes. Yeah, Not like that. this era, though. Like, I think we played in the early 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Lifetime self-titled the like reunion show or record. That record fucking slaps. It's so good. It's a good record. So all right, that's all. I had to get. I wanted to get it out there. Yeah, to get it out. Hey, I love mouthpiece. I love every mouthpiece record. I am a mouthpiece fan. I just don't really enjoy this song as much. Um, And we were talking. And I'm just going to go ahead and say it, even though it's maybe not the nicest thing. This was a weird way to, for us to close the record because it, it, it is a little bit abrupt. And I think that's A, a strength, but then B, like, you know, what if this record would have closed with that Lifetime song or with the Snapcase song or whatever, you know, where it's like it has a fucking like real hard hitting end, but the, the mouthpiece song is just kind of, not as impactful maybe and that's that's not a harsh criticism but you know just as a fan a fan's thinking 
I mean, so when I sequenced the record, I think that it was sort of, so there's a couple things. There's the aesthetic, mm. meaning like the songs just sort of flowed in a way and I let the songs flow. But when I also started got, getting to the end of it, there was something about the bookends that I appreciated mm. because you had mouthpiece that were desperately wanting the eighties to keep going. And you had quicksand that were desperately trying to get out of the eighties. Mm. <laughs> I like that. And, yeah. and it felt like there's some sort of conceptual jujitsu here that I'm appreciating. <laughs> and it was something that I, I wanted to, you know, again, it's like, I think aesthetically, I also like the way the mouthpiece song ends. Sure. And it felt sort of like, ah, you know, kind of like, there was something about that that felt right for an ending of a record. Mm -hmm. um, but also, honestly, there was no other song on the record that just screamed like end mm. to me. Uh, that one just felt like it for some reason. So between that and the concept, I worked when, with it. When you're wrong, that. you're wrong. And I can accept defeat on this. Yeah, I mean, I love mouthpiece. I'd rather you accept defeat about some of the other things we talked about. <laughs> yeah, right? Wait, um, wait till you get my... Uh, we're going to have to do a fucking... We're going to have to do a, a straight-up Snapcase debate special episode. <laughs> I'm so like, down. Like Born Against and Sick of It All. We're going to yeah. a radio station <laughs> prepared with, like, notes and all that stuff. But, um, yeah, yes. mouthpiece... I love mouthpiece. Yeah. Um, this isn't necessarily like one of my favorite mouthpiece songs, but it's a good, good song. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a, funny it's a good song. It opens their discography album. Mm. So it's like a complete opposite. So maybe it was like their mm. last, was it one of their last recorded songs? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. That's cool. Can I, can I say this though? Good yeah. song. Great interview. Yes. Great interview I love that Tim interview. Great, man. Yeah. Same, He's yeah. like very raw in that interview. And yes. it, it, it put to me like hardcore singer guy, in a different perspective. And, it, and I think that's a very important part yes. of the, the magazine in general. I think so too. And it, it sh and definitely compared to the other zines at the time that were so surface level to mm -hmm. get that deep with someone that you don't really see youth crewish type singers really get to that level of, you know, talking about life. Agreed. It was cool. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And I very think at memorable. that time too, there were a lot of like, for Tim, I'd say that there were a lot of vulnerabilities that were sort of like he was dealing with because like, you know, even back then he wasn't like the uh, patriarch of the scene in 1992. There were yeah. people who came before him, people like, you know, Rob and Ari, you know, and I think maybe he, he was even probably overshadowed by them for a bunch of years. So there was like, I think it was like a, a, a way for him to assert himself individually mm. uh that interview and and that was something that I, I wanted to do as well because i thought you know this guy is like he's real he's like a real deal guy yeah. but yeah, nobody's yeah. asking him the right questions they're just kind of asking him if he skates yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes exactly how, awesome is, yeah. how cool is straight edge or something you yeah. know like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no it's i agree and like so i guess to wrap it up um i thought this th i think this comp's a great uh, companion piece to the zine. Um, I wish the book was more readily available. I used to have a copy. And then I, when I'd read it a bunch of times, I, th I thought I'd pass it on. And now I regret it because it's very hard to find. Um, and uh, so hopefully I know you talked about doing like a from the ground up redo of it. So hopefully that 
happens. I hope, I, hope, I, hope, I want it to happen. I got completely derailed in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spent probably six months staring at a wall um, mm. and not doing anything. It affected me mentally in a very poor way. <laughs> but can, can I say, can I say thank you for doing the quarantine interviews that you did? Because that, that came at like a yeah. perfect time when it was just this very real sense of hopelessness that I think is fading out a little bit. And I think that that was an important ritual to like, look at our phone and be like, well, I'm going to do this today. Well, I almost, I actually just was looking this morning and I saw that the third wave is going to, is hitting America right now. Uh, And, and we're, we're going, we're pretty much moving in the direction back into stay the fuck home. So it was almost like, shit, maybe I should start that up again. (laughs) Yeah. I would like it if you did. Yeah. Me and Greg tuned in and we always enjoyed it. And I was going to say that the, um, when you did the song with Shaka, it was just real moving. So oh, that and I really love, that's my favorite Orange Nine Millimeter song too. Mm. Uh, yeah, so it was really great to hear that. Uh, that yeah, no, agreed. And seriously, thank you so much for all your time. Yes, and thank yeah. you for your time. <laughs> wait, wait, wait! I have one last question. Oh yeah, um, you knew this remember, was coming. Maybe. Do you remember the last time you cried? <laughs> uh, sure. I. Um, I mean, you don't yes. have to go into it, but I just no. I, I know. I, exactly I, had, what, I know exactly what. I it think is. it's easier yeah. in 2020 that, that, that question than yeah ever well, before. It, it's very raw. It's recent, um, just because two weeks ago um, we basically sort of found out that our dog has uh, canine dementia, mm-hmm. and it's starting to. You know, we just don't know how long that takes to really start kicking in. The dog, you know, we've had him. He's a rescue. We've had him for, I want to say, like nine years or so. He's very much an extra limb to me. Like, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. he's absolutely. And I've always worked from home. And when I didn't work from home, I took him to work. Like, he's, we're pretty codependent. Your friends, <laughs> your, your best friends. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 and so, you know, knowing that there's this, end somewhere mm-hmm. and i don't know where i don't know how long it's going to take i don't know anything about it but also like we're taking some you know we're just thinking about him a lot more and having to take care of him a lot more he's yeah. blind and confused and and it's mm-hmm. just it's getting to be a lot so there were moments a couple of weeks ago where you know i was cuddling with him and just looking at him and you know absolutely just started crying because it was just mm-hmm. i can't stand the idea like honestly when when it's time for him to go, like I'm probably going to be off the grid for like two months. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know that I'm going to be able to handle it. So, so sorry. Yeah. And I mean, as a fan uh, following you, like, I feel like, you know, I've seen, I know Bozy, right? Like, yep. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, I've been following for years and see all the pictures and I, I can, I just know it's tough. So my heart goes out to you and, and your partner, because I know we got a bit of Bo Bozy. Yes. Yes. Bit of Bozy. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But seriously, thank you for um, not just for your time today, but personally, your time over the years and and helping me navigate through my time in hardcore. Antimatter fanzine, antimatter comp, antimatter book has always been a part of my landscape since 1993. And it's been, you know, it's been important to me. So thanks for sharing that with us. Thanks for helping to push 
hardcore kids to be more in touch with their feelings, honestly. And, um, and be more open to other types of music. Yeah. Um, yeah. And other, other things and not be so boxed. I mean, I would, I would argue that Texas is the reason really made a lot of hardcore kids like open up a bit. Yeah. Oh, um, yes. Myself included, even though I've always liked all kinds of stuff, but I think that really made me feel comfortable and just being like, you know, I'm going to like whatever the hell I like. And yeah. that's all. And, you know, so I know my, I, here's my full circle moment to this. Uh, if it's here and we get back, it's ours. When we put it out, I remember saying, this is how you do it. Get them with a good mosh part, then give them everything else. Yeah. <laughs> my, my old band, my old band covered that on our, uh, our last seven inch. That was the B side. We covered it. Um, and, uh, I love that song. Love that mosh. It always part. comes back to the mosh parts. So. I love it. it. Does. And, and I, I've gone on record already saying, as you know, my as far as rev proper stuff, my it was start today, and and the Texas album. I can't really pick one. They're like my tied for number one, and then maybe the Judge LP is like clinging and and looking up <laughs> at them both. But um, so I'm very excited to eventually talk about Texas, um. And we also got where like Garrett uh, had already said that he would, he was down to talk. So hopefully we can have, uh, I'd love to have all you guys on. Yeah. I'm cool with daily. So we can make it happen. And it's, it's a ways away. Rev 47. Jeez, yeah, that's, that's true. Like, yeah. You're up to like 12, 12 or something. 12. Yeah. <laughs> We're taking our time. Yeah. We're kind of like yeah. taking our time to prolong our, our obsolescence. Yeah. I appreciate the uh, the chat, and uh, I'll see you in about four years. Yes, when you're, when, you're, when you're up to forty seven. Yeah. I'm glad that the discography is a different catalog number. So it's like we'll see you in like two years, and then we'll see you again in like two years. Because I was saying to Javier and Jason, like the discographies kind of let it open to more talk about like the post band slash reunion era of all this like with right. judge and bold so it's kind of cool to get a chance for that so cool awesome well thank, thank you again yeah, thanks so much, right. Norm. i can't and, believe uh, they lasted i know, oh, I know. I'm, glad they did. I'm glad thanks for sticking with us <laughs> thank you all right guys okay I'll talk to you later Peace, bye -bye. Norm. thank bye. you bye, bye. Take care.